Psychedelic science is exploding, and we talk to people at the forefront. So cut through the noise, converse with the vanguard. This is Mind Manifest. Well, hi there, and welcome along to the Mind Manifest podcast. I'm your host, Niall Campbell. Today, I was joined by Dr. Jeremy Tannenbaum. Jeremy is a psychiatrist and a specialist pain medicine physician trainee working in the public and private systems in Perth in Western Australia. Jeremy's main professional interests involve the holistic management of persistent pain, interventional psychiatric treatments such as steliate ganglion blocks for PTSD, RTMS, which stands for Repetitive Transcranial Magnetic Stimulation, and ketamine infusions, as well as, of course, the emerging therapeutic role of psychedelics. Jeremy is currently completing his pain medicine training at Fiona Stanley and Hollywood Hospitals, and he also works at the Anodyne Centre here in Perth. For a full list of his places of work, ways of contacting him, and of course any conflicts of interest, please just, as always, refer to the show notes for today's episode. Uh, Prior to working in pain medicine, Dr. Tannenbaum completed his psychiatry fellowship in general adult psychiatry, and he therefore has diverse experiences in the treatment of adult and child youth mental health issues. He has worked in contexts ranging from emergency psychiatry wards to inpatient units, private psychiatric and general hospital settings. He's also worked in mental health hospital settings and in the home services and community adult clinic contexts. So he has a really broad range of coalface experience. Before undertaking his postgraduate Bachelor of Medicine, Bachelor of Surgery at the University of Western Australia, Jeremy had also completed a Bachelor of Science, uh, Human Bio Preclin, at Curtin University. Uh, As a medical student, he also spent an elective, which we talk about, with Professors David Nutt and Robert Carhart-Harris at Imperial College London, which really compounded and encouraged his interest in the potential use of psychedelics to treat and manage difficult to treat mental health and other conditions that hadn't potentially responded to more conventional routes. So we get into all of this and please understand that today's conversation is really just hopefully the first of many. Jeremy has a a wide range of expertise and some of the issues which we cover are so sort of foundational that I don't think there's much point in trying to race through things. We will have iterative conversations over time. So I hope you enjoy the conversation and as always I'll see you on the other side. So here we are. I'm joined live with Jeremy Tannenbaum, and we will have done the bio and everything before. Um, so uh, we've gone through a lot of that, and myself and Jeremy have just been sat having lunch, uh, brunch on the, the deck, but it's so hot we've had to move inside. <laughs> so I just wanted to say a big thanks for making the trip out to the hills, Jeremy. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for yeah. having me. Oh, you're more than welcome. Um, so. We were chatting off mic a bit about how we would sort of frame a conversation, but really I think a good working knowledge of pain for people who are either interested in being practitioners in the psychedelic space or who are, you know, if you sort of ask a room full of people and say who here has experienced chronic pain or acute pain, you know, it's been really severe, or know somebody dear to you that has, you know, I assume like 100% of the hands are pretty much going to go up. It's a bit like 
it's the missing link in my opinion in terms of it's analogous to sort of mental health issues like depression and that, that sort of framework is set up. So I think we were chatting about how a foundational understanding of pain and then we can get into maybe more how that, you know, your work and your sort of area of expertise. So it would be just useful for people to maybe have a, a background into your interest in psychedelics predating being a doctor. Like what, what brought you to this field in the first place? Well, I think it was something that arose quite early on in my life I can recall um, early in childhood coming from a family of mental health practitioners that issues relating to mental health problems, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, um, family problems relating to to mental health issues were something that I was exposed to very early on in, and became a familiar and, and commonplace thing that we discussed. I think that I, I can recall my mum offered me some of Carlos Castaneda's books at a very young age and that coincided with the time that I was reading a lot about psychopharmacology which was one of my very early interests um, and I was introduced to some textbooks by my father which one of, there was a very famous textbook and it's still in its one of its uh, a more later edition that's almost like reading a graphic novel and it made understanding psychopharmacology quite interesting and if not, dare I say it, fun. Yeah, wow. And I recall then soon after being exposed to these Carlos Castaneda books, Carlos Castaneda is an anthropologist um, who did his PhD, was awarded a PhD for spending time with a shaman called Don Juan Matus um, unfortunately largely now discredited works yeah. but I've, nevertheless it was quite interesting in it and it posed these very interesting scenarios about the effects of altered states of, states of consciousness on people's understanding of the world and I can recall through reading this series of books that I became increasingly interested in the in the field of psychedelics and the the um, the potent nature of these plant medicines. And further, I, moving on into my undergraduate science degree, I can remember hearing about Roland Griffiths and some of the early work that he was doing in the late 90s and early 2000s about psilocybin. Yeah. And I was probably, um, probably early in my undergraduate degree then also remember hearing about one of the psilocybin studies in obsessive compulsive disorder that was published in about 2005. Yeah. Moving on to my medical training, I was very lucky as an undergraduate medical student to have an opportunity to spend a month with David Nutt and Robin Carhart Harris in the early stages of their psilocybin research at Imperial College. Yeah. And I spent time with them just soon after the publication of one of their early pilot studies in healthy volunteers who were given intravenous psilocybin and then put into a functional MRI machine and it was soon after they published their results on the effects of psilocybin on the default mode network often considered to be one of the key functional networks involved in self-concept or, um, or ego or self-referential mental activity. And that was a really influential experience for me, as, as I'm sure you could appreciate. And, it, and I think from there, my interest in psychedelics has been something I've not really looked, looked, looked back on. Yeah. So there, was, there seems to be a few 
um, almost like gateways and uh, sort of perfect storms of information coming at you from widely different perspectives. So you were sort of what, to just go back and double click on your getting, you know, given psychopharmacological textbooks that are really accessible to you at that age, which, you know, is an achievement in mm-hmm. itself, you're simultaneously reading something which you were reading at the time, like Field Notes of an Anthropologist, but, you know, you've put me on to Castaneda, and it, it reads like magical realism, but mm-hmm. there's still a very important perspective yes. into the phenomenology and the wisdom of psychedelics. You're getting very that much. at the same time. Um, and and something I'd add as well, Niall, is my my father has always been an avid meditator. Right. Okay. And I was introduced to meditation in my teen years, and I and I recall around also at a similar time is exploring meditation, and and became a practitioner for about four or five years, and and was doing that on a daily basis most days, and had a number of um, very enlightening experiences for want of a better term, really transformative experiences, perhaps I should say, um, while meditating. And this was all sort of co-occurring simultaneously at that that time during my interest when it was starting to peak in psychedelics and also um, in the pharmacology aspects of... um, of, uh, in terms of how psychiatric medications work. So you were, in a way, swimming in this and, and it was something which you're getting all this information at different points. You have a contact with non-ordinary states of consciousness on a daily basis through your meditation practice and it's something that is very comfortably discussed at the dinner table. Absolutely. <laughs> so that's like, and then you hit your undergrad and I'm, i got to imagine that you know, you did your undergrad in Perth. I yes, I did. I, yeah. I've got to assume yeah. that, you know, your stable mates weren't on the same tier of understanding in any of this. It wasn't part of the dialogue, no. in all honesty. I don't necessarily think that psychedelics were part of the dialogue at the dinner table either. Yeah. Um, although they were a common topic of conversation with my with my older brother. Okay. Um, and certainly the issues that... that that were discussed at the time much more openly and something that I grew up with the message about was reflective of conservative attitudes uh-huh. relating to psychedelics. So yeah. particularly having a psychiatrist as a father is a lot of the, the topic was um, a lot of the, a lot of the focus was around the potential harms of psychedelics mm-hmm. about the risk of psychotic illness. There was a family history of psychosis in a, in a cousin, in a, in a, a cousin who had developed schizophrenia and who had experimented with LSD back in the 60s and 70s and that was very much the undercurrent of the uh, and the the atmosphere of the base of the conversation very much yeah Yeah, yeah. very much Um, so this was contrasting to a to a significant extent with the realizations that I'd had in reading some of the Castaneda books and then also my own experiences with meditation as well and and the power uh, and the the um the significant changes that I saw in myself in being an, a regular meditator. What did you notice changed? Well, I'd had, I can recall a few experiences in particular, perhaps the closest would be ego dissolution. That's probably right. the, the, the closest explanation that I have is the feeling of almost of, as if I died. Right. Tell me more about that. Well, this was probably about 18 months or two years into meditating and I recall 
almost having, I don't want to say it was seeing the light, but it was it was very much a sense of tunnel vision and a narrowing of my of my of my sense of of myself to the point where it almost felt as if there wasn't a sense of self. I can't explain it in in any other ways. It's it's difficult for me to put terminology around it, but it was a sense that I was no longer myself. Um, and and but when while that might seem somewhat frightening it was also enlightening in the sense that I accepted in that similar experience that there was there was very little that really mattered outside of very few things in my life and I had a very strong sense during that experience similar to what many people would describe while using psychedelics, is that there are very few things that are really meaningful in life. And I can recall other experiences similarly where I had a sense of um, connectedness or acceptance that the day-to-day things that we all worry about constantly are really overall meaningless in the scheme of things and that I could it was much easier for me to let those things go in those moments. That's a constant process and that's why I still like to try to continue meditating because um, sometimes sometimes those day-to-day things do become overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm constantly reminded about the power of those sorts of experiences in in putting things into perspective very quickly. It seems like, it seems like that experience... What age were you when that happened? Can you remember? Um, early 20s, tw- maybe 20, 21. Yeah. It seems like it stayed with you in the same way as people report, you know. Absolutely. I can, re- I can remember it vividly to this day. Do you ever consciously, if you're getting overwhelmed with things, that does that part ever, does that visceral experience ever just present itself to say, Jeremy, <laughs> remember, <laughs> this is, you know, not meaningless, but, you know, it's not, in the order of things, this is there's something so much more superordinate in terms of what you should be. I think that I think that it's an important thing to to try to recapture by practicing regularly. Yeah. So I think that it's something. Even if you remember the experience, integrating it and putting it to practice <laughs> is a different thing. Yeah. Um, and that that you really need to have these refreshes where you it's easy to get out of the habit of meditating regularly, and often find myself. Um, letting you know, um, letting it fall to the wayside in some ways. But I think that, in all honesty, having those experiences regularly and reinforcing those lessons and practicing meditation regularly is probably the most important thing I've realised. Is even if you realised it at one point, it's not necessarily something that yeah. that you can put into practice at all times. It's crazy. It's crazy how if someone's had whether it's through psychedelics or hypnosis or or, um, uh, you know, med- non-dual awareness through a medita- meditative experience. When people will t- like explain that and say, there's a sort of an element where people think, well, how could I ever possibly, in the afterglow of that, I get the feeling that people are like, well, I mean, I'm never, you know, I'm fundamentally changed indefinitely and, you know, all the time, and this is going to be instant and constant, because how could I ever, once I've known that, how could I ever go back? <laughs> 
<laughs> what is a feature, not a bug, of the human organism? Is that <laughs> we go back, we move from the ecstasy to the laundry, so inevitably and so seemingly willingly, it just seems to be that the reminders have to be frequent. And just because you've experienced something like that doesn't mean that it's, it stays with you, but it doesn't mean that it's always with you in, in the forefront of your conscious mind. You have to work at it to keep it afloat, I suppose. I agree. And I think that the certainly the, the similarities with psychedelics are likely to play out over time as they come into more and more use. I think that it will be increasingly important for us to to reflect that these are these are likely to be very useful therapeutic tools for a great number of people. It's important that we go through the process in terms of understanding who's suitable for these experiences, how to help people optimise their experiences, so to speak, and to ha- have the experience that they need to have I do think that there's going to be a, a substantial proportion of people that may not be suitable for psychedelic experiences and that need a lot of pre- preparation work before that they're before they're able to harness the experience mm-hmm. as they would like to. And I think that it's likely that people will similarly that we have that we similar to other therapeutic modalities is that people will have a response to an initial course of treatment and there will be a, um, a relapse of their symptoms from a medicalised perspective and that these people may benefit from having refresher treatments or, totally. or subsequent treatments down the track. So the analogy that comes to my mind, and we're not really in the zeitgeist able to have this conversation because we don't really, we don't in the Western world, in the clinical model at least, have a, have a decent understanding of the long-term toxicity of some of these things but when you talk about meditation you've had deep contemplative practice experiences during contemplative practice but everyone from the person who's just downloaded the headspace app to the dalai lama has a he- has a meditation practice mm-hmm. you know the, the operative word being that it's temporal mm-hmm. that it's a practice that there's there's no perfection of it necessarily and even if you did you're only going to sit there you know momentarily and you know the, the modal phenomenological experience for the vast majority of people is not going to be (laughs) anything approaching what you had so we talk about comfortably about having a meditation practice and someone doesn't say well why are you meditating today because you meditated you know you've been doing this for so long it's not working it's like no you're not really understanding the paradigm is it fair enough to say that we might be looking at someone having a psychedelic practice you know how we optimise minimise the effective dose put protocols in place but are, are we potentially setting ourselves up for failure a little bit in the scientific community saying, trying to get these over to the mainstream by saying, this is, you know, we've had these overemphasizing, for example, the the, enti- the reverse shift from palliative to curative and say, well, we're done, you know. who are, I'm slightly concerned that it doesn't leave any wiggle room to then mm-hmm. say, well, we might need a psilocybin re-up every three months with depression. <laughs> You take a weekend off, you know, your life, that's still a better improvement in a direct comparison with the current paradigm of, you know, daily intake. Is it appropriate to say a psychedelic practice or does that lead us into back into territory where people are just sort of becoming overly enamoured with the phenomenology and becoming, you know, 
Do you know what I mean? It's yeah, I, I think it's important to have a balanced perspective about the role that psychedelics are likely to play as a therapeutic tool. Sure. I think that I – from to mention an anecdote from David Nutt yeah. is he had mentioned – uh, out of his patient cohort who had received psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression, about 20% remained in remission after eight years. Now, that's a, that's a remarkable result in terms of the treatment-resistant depression cohort who have tried every every possible treatment under the sun, including many alternative therapies, psychotherapeutic modalities, uh, ECT and TMS, a range of antidepressant and augmenting strategies like mood stabilizers and everything that you could throw a stick at. So it's remarkable to say that 20% remained symptom-free after a short course of psilocybin therapy in a highly treatment-resistant group, but that does mean that 80% relapsed. And we know that once you've had one episode of depression, is your risk of relapse is approximately 90% in five years. I think that psychedelics are likely to be extremely important tools Fundamentally, I don't necessarily see these as curative treatments for the complex group of patients that we're talking about who have a range of vulnerabilities and risk factors, whether you're talking about complex trauma, whether you're talking about other traumatic incidents or other family problems or other social stressors that aren't modified by having a psychedelic experience like financial difficulties or domestic violence or a range of other um, moderating factors on their on or perpetuating factors for their depression or other or other psychiatric comorbidity, um, but I think that it's important to see these in the in the broader scheme of where psychedelics lie as a treatment, and that it's likely to be an important but one part of the overall biopsychosocial multidisciplinary treatment paradigm. Mm-hmm. It's, it sounds like we need to manage expectations so that we can in a more consolidated way legitimately celebrate successes instead of it being a mile wide and an inch thick and thinking everything's great and it's good for everything is to say no it can my take on it is that it can say complex PTSD for example um, the uh, the type of client who benefits seems to benefit from psychedelic experiences has experiences which would be very difficult to achieve with other modalities and even if they did it might not be particularly safe you know someone who gets really deep into meditative practice and has unprocessed trauma surface in ways where they don't have any real framework or support structure to, to help with that but by no means would you then would any reasonable clinician or physician or person in a support network say okay so that's come up, and you've talked about that. You know, we're, we're all good now. It's a bit like if, if a country had been occupied and built an infrastructure, and then they were overthrown. It's not like every remnant of that invading force is suddenly removed the next day, nor would you necessarily want it to. The metaphor I'm giving is the sort of mycelial network of you know connections, whatever the case may be. So perhaps we need to position them more to the in the terms of messaging. It's like these are really, really powerful tools for for you know psychosocial pinch points in people's lives, and then 
where and when they sit with a, a repeat with the practice will be indicated by the science. You know, how frequently, that's not an arbitrary question, that is a falsifiable question, and people like yourself uh, and the work that you did at Imperial um, is sort of helping to protocolize that. So to come on a little bit from, you know, you're an undergrad, you've, you went across, tell me what, how did you, how did you, you were obviously steeped in all of this and had a good sensibility for it and then you're, you're, you're doing your undergrad medical degree. How did you reach out to the team at Imperial? Because I've got to imagine you were pretty, you were pretty early out of the gate, Jeremy, relative to a lot of people in the space now. I was very lucky to have a mentor by the name of Sean Hood who had connections with Bristol University where David Nutt used to be and, Dave, and Sean Hood was one of my mentors at, at, um, during my undergraduate medical degree and he very graciously offered to connect us with David Nutt yeah. who, um, in fact, we were actually approved to spend some time with one of his colleagues who, but unfortunately she was unwell and it meant that we were placed with David Nutt serendipitously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it, even I, I couldn't have designed it to yeah. end up like it did. <laughs> he was um, your Don Juan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah along with Robin and his very capable yeah. and, and fascinating team of people. Yeah. So one thing that um, Robin Carhartt Harris's background, if I'm right in saying, is you know he I think had come to David Nod or his team and expressed an interest, and then was you know ostensibly told to go through the. Um, you know, a credentialing process of understanding neuroscience. But I think he came from a background he was quite interested in. Did he have a master's in psychodynamic therapy? Or he's a psychoanalyst so by a, persuasion? He's a is clinical that? psychologist. He's, right, background. okay. Yeah. Um, he then, when I met him, he was a postdoc. So he just completed his PhD a few years earlier. Right, okay. So he was um, already finished through yeah. the PhD. So, yeah. so he was already, but I mean, by the time I'd met him, he was already heavily invested in the psychedelic yeah, yeah, space. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um uh, and the and he was very lucky to have found such a supportive um, team and to really have carved out this incredible space that he has and become one of the pioneers globally in the field mm. and is now I believe he's moved to um, to California. Well, that's to work that, with a prominent uh, uh, research Zali, group. Yeah, I, I want to touch. I think we should. By the way, anyone listening, there will be quite detailed show notes. So anything that we discuss, often people are you know trying to pause and stop the car and write it down. Anything where we can link on to, I will have put it in the show notes so people can do a deep dive. But I definitely want to put a pin in that because the, the Adam Ghazali's, I think it's his lab, and they have only really started recently entered into the psychedelic space, but his framing of things as the broad church of experiential medicine, of which psychedelics is like a major player, mm-hmm. I think is a very, potentially very fruitful way to, exp- I'm very interested in, in, in that, but yeah. You've got this explosion of these global centres of excellence yeah. over the past three or four years. I mean, Johns Hopkins, Harvard, Yale, Ivy League universities who a few decades ago wouldn't be seen anywhere near this field, mm-hmm. I think are, are clearly seeing the potential of these therapies and and have recruited some very capable and very... Um, very well regarded researchers in the space. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that 
you know, we're we're at a very exciting time in the field mm-hmm. over the next five to ten years to see where this where mm-hmm. this takes us. Mm-hmm. And the contextualising of it seems to be on the lips of the people who are more thinking about it in a more nuanced way. From my reading on it, is like yeah, it's almost a deeper type of excitement, which is tempered by a type of how do we best, you know, it's like a new football player signed to your club and he's amazing, but it's like the people who really inter- really know their football want to make sure that he's you know, supported. You know, it's like it's all, if, if, if Lionel Messi comes to play with my futsal team, he's going to score a lot of goals, but <laughs> there's not going to be a lot of support for him. You know, it's how do you sort of showcase and interface yes. psychedelics with other things yeah. and how do we, I believe that we can utilise, there's a potentially a second order renaissance in different things whereby stuff which was maybe lost to a type of quasi-scientific quackery that all of a sudden will be dusted off, the baby will be taken from the bathwater and we can look at these as modalities which might really helpfully augment um, psychedelics. You know, I think hypnosis is is absolutely ripe for a bit of a dust-off and a, you know, dismissal of the sort of more Svengali nonsense and just positioned back in the foreground of a cheap, you know, available, uh, highly validated uh, assistant to psychedelic therapies. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I think that there are a lot of parallels in other aspects of, of medicine um, that, you know, a lot of the trend in, in terms of therapies is the use of augmenting strategies. Yeah. So whether you're talking about psychotherapy, psychotherapy, whether you're talking about other medication strategies, I can see that there'll be a lot of, you know, the 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 next phase of of research will be really looking at how do we, what are the factors that we can use to amplify or mm-hmm. optimize these experiences? How can we prolong the benefit of these experiences? Um, how can we improve the response or even even enable people to have remission from their conditions? It's, it's by no means have we reached the ceiling in terms of what can be produced by these substances. I think that the degree to which they can or can't be modulated <laughs> by different things and then all of a sudden condi- absolute contraindications might become relative contraindications if you're able to you know, reduce the dosage enough if you augment it with different strategies. So there's just, yes. just the, the, the amount of scope for exploration, a sort of, you know, if and then systematizing protocol to just test everything alongside everything just means that uh, we're really entering into a phase where I hope that scheduling can support that simply because there's just a lot of work, you know, retracking a lot of work to be done and just the dull and laborious task of testing every single potential metric that we can. Um, So I'm sort of jumping you all around all over the place. Uh, Apologies about that because I really want to drill down into you know, you're you're an undergrad. You've. It sounds like. At, at what point were you? Re- did you have any sort of insight at that stage, Jeremy, to say, "God, this is a real." You know, I'm really. I've. I'm serendipitously at the coal face here. Did you must have been just like a kid in the candy shop, or did you have that insight at the time? Is it only with? To a degree, but yeah. a lot of it has been cemented with in 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 retrospect. Uh-huh. I don't know if it was even really clear about how influential that group in particular have become um, until you know later part of the uh, of this most recent decade and I think that I was always going to do psychiatry I don't think that that was really in ever particularly in doubt but 
I think that, that certainly the the tide was that was it was an inflection point. Yeah. And soon afterwards, the research exploded. You know, within one or two years, it was be, it was becoming a widespread um, area of interest, and there was a flurry of research that happened. You know, but by twenty sixteen, it expanded exponentially since, mm-hmm. and we're only really now getting back up to the level to the volume of research papers that we were in the sixties. Yeah, so it's and it's, it's absolutely no sign of slowing down. What um, so? What sort of? How did that then fit into your your undergrad career? You know, was that sort of like an interesting? So that was a that was a an international elective. Everyone right, had to yeah. do an elective term, and I was very lucky that that was mine. Yeah. Um, I, I had that year one one further year of medical my medical studies, and then I completed my intern year locally, and soon after went into psychiatry. Yeah. Um, and came to the middle part of my psychiatry training when I was very lucky to have a placement with a colleague who was at that time completing his pain specialty, uh, his pain specialisation, and that was really ma- it made it clear to me that that was a, a pathway for psychiatrists. Before that, it was very much presumed that you needed to be an anaesthetist to to do pain medicine although several people nationally had had gone through the pathway from psychiatry and other physician and surgical specialties, but mostly anaesthetists become pain specialists. Um, But I'd always been interested in chronic pain. I did another elective in my medical degree in in the chronic pain clinic, one of the chronic pain clinics locally, and found it really interesting. And immediately the interface with psychiatry became blatantly obvious. (laughs) Um, The, you know, the rates of mental illness are um, extremely high. About half of people with chronic pain disorders have depression and anxiety, and that's not including PTSD, substance use, complex trauma, um, personality disorders, any other range of complex psychiatric comorbidities. All told, I think that number, and I'm not saying you're saying one in two of the chronic pain patients that I see have some diagnosable mental health issue and the others don't, you know, I know you're not saying that, but all told, you know, everything through the gate, would you, could you, would you care to hazard a guess in your own clinical experience, like what percentage of people are taking something on a sort of a, a broad suite of the DSM? 70 to 80%, yeah, roughly. Yeah. yeah. In, a, in a chronic pain clinic, you do get people with more isolated and spe- specific, sure. more localised pain sites, you know, someone so, with knee osteoarthritis or they've not had a good outcome from a surgical procedure. But often these people develop adjustment disorders, sure. chronic depressive illness, anxiety problems related to their disability and imp- impacts on the rest of their yeah. life from from their pain condition, even if they didn't have any pre-morbid psychiatric issues. Sure. So it's a case of it's like, without being too low resolution about it, the rate, the sort of concomitant rate of comorbidity out of the gate is 70-80%. Very high. There's some estimates that personality disorders are more common in pain clinics than in psychiatry clinics. (laughs) So in a way, I could well believe that having, um, you know, worked and we were chatting over lunch, you know, I've worked in in a residential rehab and it's, you know, what you put above the door (laughs) as to what you're treating, certain certain days feels fairly arbitrary, <laughs> you know, you th- 
think today are we the personality disorders clinic or the alcohol and other drugs clinic is there is there a huge amount of daylight i'm not trying to be facetious it's just i don't really know if there's a common ground understanding of that because people seem so siloed even within the allied health profession completely agree it's it's interesting though because the 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 treatment paradigm under which pain patients have been traditionally treated has been much more narrow and pathologizing about their specific pain condition but i think that it was very clear for me early on and has been emphasized to a large extent in my training in pain medicine is the importance of having this biopsychosocial multidisciplinary approach um i don't think i think it's a struggle to learn all of those principles in a two-year pain training program but I think that it was quite a natural progression for me in understanding pain chronic pain management in particular Mm -hmm. coming from a psychiatry background Mm -hmm. I do have a very diverse group of patients that I see Um, most of the patients that I see have significant psychiatric comorbidity that's the nature of the the patients that I receive referrals for and there are many patients that I see that that have never had a psychiatric or psychological assessment or any mental health input who I may be, they've been referred in for a specific pain disorder, mm-hmm. but actually they have marked psychiatric comorbidity. So you're picking up a lot of stuff that's Often, often pre-morbid, um, yeah, even okay, before the yeah. pain condition or often wow. um, with early onset in life. Yeah. Frequently we see a lot of these these symptom clusters that you might call medically unexplained symptoms, which is a really broad term for things <laughs> yeah. like fibromyalgia, functional neurological mm-hmm. symptom disorders. Um, you could put a lot of other chronic pain disorders in that in that space, irritable bowel syndrome, migraine. So that's a large proportion of people I see. And it's interesting to see these complex risk factors. Um, very commonly things like complex trauma pop up that haven't really been considered or identified previously. You know, the patient has never had an opportunity to work through these issues or never really understood its relevance to their current presentation. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, it is something that I, I, I often need to focus on as part of my initial assessment, if not always focus on as part of my initial assessment, because it's, it's, a, it's invariably a key, a key aspect to be addressed as part of their overall treatment moving early, forward. Early, you know, the very, earlier the like, better. Hello, my name is Dr. Tannenbaum. You know, f- first r- it round com- of it questions. It comes up in the initial assessment, absolutely. Uh, um, maybe j- I'd love to then drill down into your taxonomy of pain and maybe we could do almost like a PSA section here, sort of public service announcement to sort of, you know, get a little, I'm just going to ask you really basic questions about your conceptualization of pain and how it is broadly considered. And because um, there's, bound to be a lot of people listening who experience this and pain is the worst of all things it's you know it's an irreducible philosophical you know we could get really down into the ground truth of it but you know we both have babies you know your baby's in pain any type of sort of abstract thinking of oh well you know in a million years this won't matter just you know it's the most real thing in the universe on mm-hmm. some you know Absolutely. assessment so, you know, you scale that up to the high street and that still remains the case. So I do really sympathise with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also working previously being a dentist, you know, it's just it was my bread and butter. It's, it's you know, it's a horrendous uh, thing for people to be going through. It really, really is. Um, so the 
what I'm getting a sense from you, Jeremy, and we'll get into the more specifics of it, but that it sounds like you're, with all due respect to the various colleagues and peers and pathways that people have been through, and it's not necessarily individuals per se, it's the systems that they're in, it sounds like by the time people are getting to see you, there is a, the opening conversational gambit is about, you know, you have been referred for a pain that is nominally in this area or is diffuse or this condition, but then you're just met with a lifetime's worth of information that you then have to use your skill set to sort of organize and sift through and help people to make sense of. That sounds like you're getting this pregnancy of information is, you know, coming at you. For a substantial proportion of patients that I see, um, particularly in my work in the public system, is access to services and understanding of navigating these complex services and how to access the right people is very difficult. And the way that the medical system is structured is is such that in primary care, my my GP colleagues have very limited opportunity because of the way that general practice is structured to actually address and explore these much more complex determinants of that person's whole health, whether you're talking about pain or psychiatric comorbidity or their blood pressure sure. or their obesity. Um, and, and so each of these individual problems are often seen as a as an isolated issue and then they're referred off to a specific clinic practitioner or, yeah. a clinic specialist um and it's it with the way that the medical system is structured it's very difficult to develop that holistic understanding of the patient and under and therefore to understand what the right treatment program or pathway is there's a physical limitation it feels like you know as the person is taking their index finger to point with the gp if they point at their mouth they're going to go to the oral medical clinic and if they point at their knee they're going to be sent to the you know the orthopedic surgeon in a different different part of the hospital it almost it's like that will determine their physical pathway into the the healthcare system at a you know at a second um sort of tier level and then even within tertiary health centers major hospitals they're they're very siloed specialties sure is there's there's often significant delays in accessing treatment is I can refer to one of my esteemed colleagues in another specialty area and it can take them one year, two years, three years, four years to get to see any specialist in that area. Mm-hmm. By the by the time their their core problems that I refer them for are uh, drowned out by another series of problems. <laughs> yeah. There's a so I think that's a nice way to pivot to you know we have these uh, the structural issues we know that people who are in pain, that it is a multifarious, chron- like, uh, you know, chron- chronifying almost condition. You know, it doesn't necessarily need to be chronic, but we can get into the mechanisms that cause things sure. to shift from acute to, to chronic. So you have these people who are yearning for treatment. The structure of the tertiary centers and the referral pathways mean that they just sort of can't get that parallel treatment that they need. And it all, and even if that were running as humming as efficiently as it possibly could, especially in the public system, the timeframes under which that's happening, the body, the biological organism that we are, doesn't really necessarily respect that. So you know, in steps, things like ketamine, which is even blowing in terms of the immediacy of effect for people who are not so much in pain, but I know it's it's very keen. People in the ED field are quite keen on it because they're prescribing SSRIs for suicidal people. And it's like these are going to take a few weeks. 
to work and the person is saying, well, I'm planning on killing myself you know, t- Tuesday. So we're moving from these fields where we, we have, people are just demoralized by these long, drawn out, you know, very convoluted pathways. And all of a sudden, we've got this hype around something which is going to be a quick fix. So how do we help people listening delineate between the hype and the reality of these new treatment modalities? And we can talk about ketamine in the field of pain. You know, before we get into the different types of pain, how, how do we help people to navigate this space? Because it's hard enough to navigate as it is. So this is this new player, which is going to attract a lot of attention. Well, one of the issues that I would raise is that access to these treatments is going to be very limited. And one of the limiting factors already is the difference between the public and the private system. Yeah. So public services are very good at offering a range of services at significantly reduced or no cost. There are limitations in terms of resources for these services. And there are a range of treatments that they're not able to offer because they're fundamentally off-label and not approved under the Therapeutic Goods Administration for specific treatments. So, for example, ketamine is a good example where it's often used off-label, particularly in the private system, uh, for chronic pain and, and psychiatric disorders. But it's only a, it's only formally approved under the Therapeutic Good, Goods Administration as a dissociative anesthetic. So it's as an anesthetic agent it yeah. is per, for perioperative mani- uh, sure. for anesthesia. And it's very commonly used as a post-operative analgesic, particularly in people on high doses of opioids. It helps reduce their opioid dose requirements. It reduces their opioid withdrawals, also reduces something that's, uh, that we're more aware of over the past five or ten years called opioid-induced hyperalgesia, which is increased pain associated with opioid use, particularly the older morphine opioids. Mm-hmm. So we call them the typical opioids. And so ketamine has a really interesting and novel role in, in acute analgesia, in addition to chronic pain, although the evidence is limited in the setting of chronic pain, and also in psychiatric indications. Now, interestingly, because of these issues with how ketamine is used and how it is not formally approved for chronic pain or psychiatric disorders, it, it's, it, the places you can access it are very narrow. So there's that needs to, in the past that sort of was good enough for what it was for because people had the you know doctors had this capacity to prescribe off label. But now if we're going to, it's a bit like you know if, if you have a telephone exchange that out here where I live doesn't take that many calls, but all of a sudden there's a massive infrastructural change. You know you need to upgrade the the communicative systems because it'll just start to jam and that will become a pinch point in the way that people are able to receive treatment so I feel like that is going to be something which needs to be addressed. Absolutely it will require an overhaul of the whole public health system effectively if it's going to be made accessible to larger groups of people but we do really fundamentally need more robust clinical evidence for that to happen. It's a bit of a um, paradox then or it's a bit of a conundrum because it's you know it's sort of analogous to the kid who wants to get a job and he's like well I'll employ you if you've got more experience and they're like well (laughs) in order I need to get a job so I can get experience it's like the people who want don't aren't their job is to prevent the conservative approach to not overhaul systems are going to say well where's the evidence and you say well we're not able to make that evidence until we have these systems in place so we can generate 
the sort of the data. increase yep. the power of the data that we're giving to you. Yeah. So how to how to sort of how to reduce that polarity? You know, what what do you see? And because you're at the coalface, what needs to happen? And who, who's involved in that? Is it project managers? Is it people who work in policy? You know, who's doctors who understand? Well, one of the biggest limiting factors with doing this kind of high level clinical research is capital. So fundamentally, you need. I mean, to do robust randomised control trials, which are currently the gold standard in in developing an evidence base for established treatments uh, to establish the therapeutic effects of treatments. Um, these cost millions and millions of dollars, and they take years, lots of resources, lots of um, lots of staff, clinical researchers, and a range of other clinicians and experienced people to take part and. The, this is the this is a primary limiting factor is that there's not enough money that's mm-hmm. available to really do the type of work that's required, mm-hmm. and it's a slow going process. Is you you know the, the the research cycle is dictated by grants, by the amount of time that that researchers have, now further determined by the fact that universities have less and less capacity to pay for academics, um, and academics are losing their jobs left, right, and centre. Center, yeah. And I think that these are significant things that influence the, the our ability to actually collect and, and gather meaningful data. I should say that the, Fed, the Food and Drug Administration in the US has approved ketamine um, and, and intranasal S-ketamine for the treatment of, um, of treatment-resistant depression and also suicidality. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Because it's with delivery. The, the whole packaging, the, 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 the clinical care model around S-ketamine didn't. Exactly. Well, me away, you know. th- th- so no one's really compared, d- ever done a head-to-head trial on S-ketamine versus k- for intravenous ketamine, for okay. instance. Um, there is some evidence in terms of pool data that that intravenous ketamine is better tolerated and more effective for treatment-resistant yeah. depression, um, and that's probably because of these complex metabolites yeah. that that um, that the racemic ketamine. So ketamine is a racemic mixture. It's a it's a mixture of two different enantiomers, okay. which are like mirror images of um, L or R and S ketamine, okay. and so they're mirror images of each other, but they can't be superimposed like yeah, a like left hand drive yeah. and a right hand drive yeah. car. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they, uh, so the ketamine is metabolized in the liver to a range of different metabolites, many of which have some activity, and they all have slightly different activity and affinity for different mm-hmm. receptors. Whereas S-ketamine, which is now available as an intranasal formulation called Spravato, um, is a more potent NMDA receptor antagonist. Yeah. I'll come back to the NMDA yeah, receptor we'll definitely need to. because it's an important one in <coughs> in, um, in pain, but also in psychiatric disorders. Mm-hmm. And so, intranasal ketamine is given to is now approved in Australia, um, and is likely to become PBS approved. subsidised in the next six to twelve months for people with treatment resistant depression and suicidality. And people need to have an extended period of monitoring with a single administration under the um, under the supervision of, a, of clinicians, and it's effectively given as a day procedure. Yeah. Um, versus intravenous ketamine, which traditionally has been given as an inpatient for an extended period of time over five or more days yeah. on a sort of low dose infusion over that time, but people really just sitting in bed. 
and I think a bit of a wasted opportunity in offering other treatment modalities along Certainly. with it to augment the experience. Yeah. Um, but more recently, there there is an outpatient uh, day a day procedure, effectively yeah. a day infusion that's being provided um, in the private system um, of ketamine infusions. So we have a we we have distinct and known differences in terms of the actual compounds themselves you know at, at the level of you know different isomers being enantiomers being used there's all these different which is going to have knock-on effects which would be beyond my understanding of you know the first sort of pharmacology but we, when we don't really have good you know just that sort of comparison data we're talking about we just need to backfill all of these data to compare one thing with another we also have um whilst i don't want to maybe over egg the pudding of the placebo impact there is a there is a those two routes of transmission are very different, you know, in terms very of much. their profundity, um, because people's antecedent understanding of getting an intravenous is something, you know, you're, something big is happening to you. Whereas if someone's getting a nasal spray, it's like, you know, they had a bit of, you know, wheat, uh, hay, hay fever. So I don't, whilst that might seem facetious, I absolutely don't think that it is, because there's an element whereby you think, okay, well, we want we want to respect the fact that this is a really perfectly viable way to administer, to introduce these compounds to the body through the, you know, um, the epithelium and, you know, your skin inside your nose or the, the tissue inside your nose. But at the same time, I just don't know how that's going to be ritualized. And had you asked me about that, I'd say, look, you know, placebo is important, but, you know, just, it's about the pharmacodynamics of these things. But I worked, I sat, I worked as an intern, just volunteered at uh, Synthesis in, in Holland. And they told me that they heavily ritualized the taking of the, um, the, the, the truffles. Um, and they said, we've been going for a couple of years. We are getting way more profound experiences. And we, you know, on average, use less because and we've noticed a sort of an inverse relationship between as we ritualize more at the top of the day the experience the, the need for re-ups and the dosages is is it, we haven't tested it but that was clearly the anecdotal understanding and i thought if someone had said okay we've got a way to just spray this up your nose you know would we be seeing the same phenomenological impacts would we be getting i just don't Notes. I don't know if I may be making too much of that because that's my world, but I think it's... I think it's so. extremely important. I think that these are factors that have a dramatic effect uh-huh. on the person's experience, whether you're talking about intravenous or whether you're talking about intranasal. Mm-hmm. I think that there are a range of these augmenting fat environmental factors mm-hmm. in, the, in the setting yeah. that are likely to be really important mm-hmm. and to to have significant effects on the person's outcomes from that from that intervention. I agree with you though that wherever there's a procedural intervention involved, yeah. is there a there, we know that there's a significant placebo effect. Yeah. And will that be, you know, I don't it doesn't really matter as much if someone's taking three massive <clears throat> intakes of, you know, 5-MeO-DMT, <laughs> what the curtains look like. But if people are thinking, I'm just taking the nasal spray, I don't know how impact this is going to be. You know, I'm at the end of my tether, depressed. This, this isn't going to fucking work. You know, I've, uh, we do need to con- consider these things and see how we can um, how we can at least test for them in advance so that they become less speculation and more. We have known, uh, you know, we have met, we haven't data on this. Now, do, do this, don't do that. Why? It isn't just an arbitrary 
decision. We've, we, it was initially, but we tested for it. And this is, we're sort of refining the protocol of how we deliver these as well. I think that's really important. And, and also bearing in mind that the expectations of patients coming in to have these therapies are already very high. Yeah. In that they've, by definition, these are patients with treatment-resistant depression yeah. to meet criteria. They also need one of the one of the criteria, which is based on some of the clinical trials, is that they need to be starting a new antidepressant at the same time, uh-huh. which is only from one specific class called the SSRIs, uh, which is primarily that 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 requirement is on the basis of the clinical trials done historically. Yeah. Um, but it's quite a narrow. It's quite a narrow group of people that the, 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 the S-ketamine is going to be available yeah, for so it's really not on the huge, basis of those requirements. It's not a huge cohort. So um, I have been dangling in front of people this promise of discussing, of getting your take on the conceptualising, the sort of div- dividing up of pain. So let me just, mm-hmm. before I forget, how, how do you conceptualise pain? I know that's a massive question, but if someone off the street says, okay, doctor, what is pain? You know, what, what would you, how would you sort of elevate or pitch that to them? I would start at the International Association for the Study of Pain's definition, which okay. was revised last year. Yeah. The International Association for the Study of Pain is a global organisation that have provided uh, the, the, the definitions for a range of pain descriptors. Um, so pain is defined by them and is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. So there's a there's an open it's quite a broad definition it really. Is. I would imagine that it's been it hasn't got tighter it's got more expansive over the time or has it Well, you know, they use terminology very carefully. Sure. Um, I think that there's very limited change in the definition, in all honesty, from okay. 20, 25 odd years ago. I think that what is certainly more and more appreciated is the impacts on people's psychological and social functioning associated with pain. And, and they're alluding to that in terms of the emotional experience component of their definition or the affective yeah. component. I think that the the biology of pain is is much much better understood um but fundamentally still very poorly understood and you have a long way to go in understanding how complex uh the neurobiology of pain is Mm -hmm. and the and the other risk factors from a psychosocial perspective that we've that we've alluded to previously my uh, you can go a bit further and then subcategorize each of the specific types of pain go for it so when we think about acute pain versus chronic pain, yeah. and you can think about acute pain as nociceptive or inflammatory, yeah. nociceptive meaning pain, um, pain receptors, um, and there's often an inflammatory component, component. There's been a specific acute injury like a fracture or, um, or infection or other kind of acute problem, um, some acute pathology. And, but you can also have other kinds of acute pain. That you can have acute neuropathic pain, or you can have um, you can have uh, a range of other types of acute pain incidents. Then, when you think about the when you think about chronic pain, is the actual mechanism changes from acute pain. So, 
as you have more of these nociceptive inputs, these painful, noxious stimuli that are that are precipitating these um, these pains, the pain transmission into the spinal cord and up to the brain. Just so I can double click on that, nociceptive means pain receptor fibers which transmit information from a point of injury or insult to the through the peripheral nervous correct. system. So brain. Yeah. Correct. So it's been it's transmitted through specialized pain, pain neurons. Pathways. That we yeah. call primary afferent neurons or okay. nociceptive neurons. And there are different specialized nociceptive neurons. For example, different neurons will respond to heat, different yeah. ones to cold, different ones to chemical irritants. Chemicals are other irritants and then others that might respond to blunt force, for example. Yeah. And they that they transduce that noxious stimulus into an electrical signal via the uh, by that nociceptive neuron and then up into the back of the spinal cord to an area called the dorsal horn where they spew out some neurotransmitters other inflammatory chemicals etc and then they stimulate a second neuron called a secondary second order neuron which then transmits it to the other side of the spinal cord and then up to the brain okay. to a really important relay station mm-hmm. called the thalamus before it gets to the thalamus, it's processed in lots of different areas of the midbrain, and there's a lot of uh, really complex processes that happen before you're even consciously aware of, of pain, including the reflex response, uh, the autonomic response like high heart rate, blood pressure, sweating, that fear, fight or flight response. And then it's in the thalamus, it's relayed not only to the area of the brain that is responsible for telling you where the pain is but it's also relayed into other areas of the brain that are important for emotion regulation mm-hmm. sleep motivation concentration and memory and of course fear centers like mm-hmm. the amygdala and the hippocampus and more and more over time the longer you have pain the more and more these areas of the brain state seem to to become altered in their function yeah and that explains to a degree as to why people develop more psychiatric comorbidity when the longer that they have chronic pain. But there are a range of really important risk factors as to why people transition from acute mm-hmm. to chronic pain. Some things um, might include demographics, so older people develop more yeah. chronic pain after acute pain uh, after acute uh, painful injuries or insults. But also other things like depression and anxiety. My experience certainly is complex trauma is a significant risk factor um, leading uh, increasing the risk of transition from acute to chronic pain. But also other things, um, for example, uh, uh, something called catastrophization. Mm-hmm. Catastrophization is really a, a set of negative cognitive biases or automatic negative thoughts that refer, it ref, essentially refers to three of these which is rumination, the inability to stop thinking about pain. Magnification, this is terrible. This is the worst thing that could ever happen to me. And then that sense of helplessness that comes with pain. There's nothing that I can do about this. This is, this is outside of my control. And catastrophization has been consistently shown to be one of the strongest prognostic factors okay. for pain severity and disability. So we have a... So I just get make sure I've got this right in my head. We sort of have a... <coughs> We've got this, you know, pathway where we've got, and, and we should say whenever we're talking about how these, you know, these this pain transitions from acute into long term, we're talking about, you know, not something ancient in your own past. It's like new, an external world insult. You know, you're all, everybody's in the car together, and you're all similarly injured in a car accident. Everybody gets a mm-hmm. spear in their knee at the same time. Whatever the case is, this is changed from the outer outer world 
into the body, which is you know transduced Correct. into electricity, which is mere, you know, and through these functional, it's not pathological by any means at this stage, it's functioning properly to say, okay, up we go to the relay station. Then we hit this midbrain, which is just um, an incredibly complicated um, area where we're looking at pre-consciousness, so to speak, um, impacts on the body. This is the, at the level of physiology predominantly. Mm-hmm. Then we get into this area where it starts to then light up all the, the, the parts of the brain where we then can modulate it through our conscious experience. And one of the things which you're noticing is the data is suggesting that there are three standout ways in which your sort of cognitive, I suppose your cognitive habit, your cognitive proclivity, whatever the case is, is going to mean that you fare, you're, 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 you're marked out as a more likely person who's going to move from a, a risk factor. A, a, a risk factor will start to long term potentiate towards yep. this being an issue where they're at your door. <laughs> and one would be catastrophizing, which is. Probably, I would imagine, predominantly associated with, in my experience at least as a therapist, with it's very, very common in um, people with significant trauma histories, but also depression in a Abs- sort of more absolutely. low-key way, just like everything's going to be terrible yeah, all the time. And exactly. Then you've got people for um, um, who are more prone to to a type of rumination of thinking, of, or like almost like a perseverant thought, which makes me think, I wonder, is there... A, and disproportionate representation of this in people on the spectrum, and also with people with OCD, because if there's a, if you have a proclivity towards perseverance of thought, if you're focused on something, whether it's Lego Technics or pain, you know, you're going to start firing more for that. And the last one I've forgotten, but that's what helplessness. was it? A helplessness, so like a learned helplessness yeah. again. So that could be come from a type of, you know, Seligman's work on how you know people at a very early age have adverse in, impacts. So they would. If you've had adverse childhood experiences, I would say mm-hmm. you'd be high, much, much more likely yep. to receive the same environmental insult. And by insult, I don't mean a physical, like, you know, you're a bad person. I mean, it could be a car accident, whatever. The initiating mm-hmm. factor becomes sort of moot in the span of, ostensibly moot in the span of time because all of a sudden, who you were before the incident starts to predominate as to what your daily experience of it is after a certain period of time. And that's that's important. I'll come back to the other mechanisms of pain in a moment, but yeah. I think that it's important to reflect that in the central nervous system, psychological and physical trauma are treated similarly. Yeah. Is they both cause similar... They, they're both associated with significant changes in hormone function, in inflammatory changes... Um, in sensitization of various pathways, yeah. partly mediated through the NMDA receptor, yeah. um, is there's these significant commonalities between psychological and physical physical trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, now there are other kinds of pain that I, ha- I haven't really mentioned from a mechanism perspective. I've mentioned nociceptive or inflammatory, but you can also consider things like neuropathic pain. Yeah which is associated with damage to the somatosensory system. So, um, for example, peripheral neuropathic pain, like having a squashed nerve from a herniated disc in your back or having peripheral neuropathy from um, a range of causes like alcohol use or diabetes. Um, And then you've got central neuropathic pain syndrome. So the ones that I most commonly see are people that have had spinal cord injuries that have a terrible neuropathic pain below the level of their of their spinal cord injury and then a group of people that have post-stroke pain so people that have horrible 
um, central neuropathic pain syndromes after certain kinds of strokes. Jesus, that seems unfair, doesn't it? There's very, very difficult conditions to treat. Yeah. And would you see... Uh I know guys is listening is probably a bit of a bummer. We are going to start to talk about the, the ways that this can be treated and things which can help. But do you see, it stands to reason that if you've got these types of, like neuropathic pain, I'd love to you know, unpack a little bit more because I don't really, you know, f- I think it would be useful for people to understand how it maybe differs in, in its mechanisms. But speaking about neuropathic pain, do you see an out of the blue... Or, largely out of the blue move towards suicidality? Like, do, do people who have experienced long-term, like, who are the people for whom pain is just, you know, this is just totally uh, unsustainable for me uh, from a, just a, f- a physical perspective? Like, I feel like I'm being tortured every day. Is there a certain worst-case scenario that you see? Look, it's it's difficult. It's, it's person-dependent. Sure. Um, there are certainly types of conditions that are associated with suicide um, in terms of the chronic pain disorders, so trigeminal neuralgia, Uh certainly high up there, and cluster headaches. Um, But there are, I mean, it would be hard for me to pinpoint specific conditions because overall chronic pain is associated with significant increase in in suicidality or, or suicide. I certainly see a lot of people with history of complex trauma and and comorbid chronic pain disorders who have pre-existing problems with suicidal thoughts even before the onset of their pain condition. And of course, developing pain as a young person, whether it's medically understood or not, significantly impacts on a person's personality development trajectory, capacity to regulate emotions. I suppose I'm, 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 it's my biased experience, but you, you know, I think a lot of people because pain can't be point, you know, chronic pain as well. I think there comes this element where maybe there's an, an element whereby people don't feel believed. They think, oh, it's had this for a long time. Is there a malingering component? And and then oh, lo and behold, their 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 you know their moods being seriously affected. They're having suicidal ideation. But I think it's it's just a sort of a, a sympathy thing where you know you see someone with trigeminal neuralgia or you know a cluster headache, and you think. Aye, there, but for the grace of God, go I. You know, you give you give the, the the happiest chappy on the street that for a year, and then see how they feel. So I think there's an element whereby Agreed. I don't think people fully who have been pain free largely mm-hmm. uh, have an understanding of how the grinding attrition at a cognitive level mm-hmm. of chronic pain it's just horrendous. I agree, and the experience of most people that I see has been one of feeling invalidated. In their experiences, by in seeing various health professionals, mm-hmm. I think that many people feel most validated in seeing people that are not from the medical field, um, from alternative practices or massage or Pilates or acupuncture. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I, I think that for me, coming from a psychiatry background, is it was a bit easier for me to accept that I can't rely on investigations and blood tests imaging to to make the diagnosis of chronic pain we, we still use them they're useful to exclude red flags like sure. um you know medical emergencies fractures tumors rule things out um, you know it, that, yeah exactly easy, more easily treated really in a way yeah it, to, to a degree yeah. um you know it's they're, they're useful for for that purpose but i think that beyond that is they they have limited utility in telling us why people have the pain that they do. Uh-huh. I waited to transition. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, if you if you do an MRI of a hundred people over the age of forty on their on their backs, eighty percent of them will have pathology, if you can call it pathology, mm. um, in their spinal imaging because MRIs are so sensitive. But the majority of them don't have pain. They don't have a, a perception of. They're not reporting exactly. it to a clinician. Yeah, yeah. and it's and crazy. so you know you you then image a person who has pain and you see a pathology and it's easy to equate that pathology with their pain. And sometimes it does correlate, but very frequently it doesn't. And then you have the dilemma of what about people with very widespread pain disorders? Mm -hmm. And which brings me to the next, the, the probably the most poorly understood mechanism of what we call the, the nosoplastic or the, the dysfunctional pain syndrome. So where there's fundamentally alteration in the central nervous system processing of pain. Um, so-called central sensitization, and you could apply this label to uh, to conditions like fibromyalgia, mm-hmm. irritable bowel syndrome, migraine, a range of other chronic pain disorders, and probably other medically unexplained syndromes as well. Um, di- chronic dizziness, for instance, where there's some kind of sensitization in those nerve pathways that is associated with with pain, but where there's no clear peripheral pathology. Wow. Or where it's out of keeping with a peripheral pathology. So mm-hmm. fibromyalgia is probably the the the, the most well known example, or irritable bowel syndrome, both common conditions. But what fibromyalgia is essentially a condition associated with widespread pain in in a certain number of sites in the upper and lower part of the body, and but also associated with other symptoms, particularly fatigue, sleep disturbance cognitive complaints for example word finding difficulties or short-term memory problems and then in addition to that is there there's significant psychiatric comorbidity and the estimates are about 80 to 90 percent have significant psychiatric comorbidity and that's a cohort that i see a fair amount of um and there's there is not always but frequently there is some sort of trauma history sometimes complex trauma but sometimes single event trauma like car accidents or or other um other significant um, infections or other injuries that then precipitate this sure. this condition, and then they have these pre-existing vulnerabilities or other risk factors. There might be workers' comp, which further sure. adds a spanner into the works. Yeah, um, it's, some, it's yeah. something in that point that just brings to mind is, you know, the way in which we're generally quite concerned about a really robust screening for um, uh, psychotic symptoms within you know, your immediate family, like, you know, cousins, you know, (laughs) this sort of really important level of not wanting from a ethical perspective, but also I think from a, from a PR perspective to not have some big scope of people for whom a really challenging psychedelic experience becomes the thing which precipitates frank psychosis or, you know, you know, like move into schizophrenia and, whether there, there's no point then the sort of body of researchers putting up the hand and you know calling up the BBC and saying, oh, by the way, this person, you know, here's all the documents they've allowed you me to share it with you. They were probably any majorly stressful event in their life. Mm-hmm. You know, a few nights of really broken sleep and a really bad breakup might have precipitated just the same. You're not going to get a free pass at this early stage. So it just really makes me think that I wonder, do we need to screen for... And it's a double-edged sword because could a really challenging psychedelic experience be enough to precipitate this, this like this 
presentation of a really diffuse. Do, do you know what I mean? Like on the one hand, obviously it's a fix, it's a, it's it's a useful tool, but is that totally nominal? Do you think is that sort of by the by or? So just to clarify, do you mean yeah. screening people for these syndromes prior to psychedelics or? Yeah, like if someone, it's like what's your history? What's your family history of schizophrenia? It's you know like what's your family history of pain? I don't necessarily. Mm. You can ask yeah. the same question twice. It's like yeah. we're looking at this from a potential. Uh, you know your sort of broad suite of condition con- uh, presentations, which might benefit, uh, but also similarly, we want to know about this information to do our due diligence before we put you through. Absolutely, I, I would argue that that's probably one of the most important things that we would do in in assessing suitability for psychedelic experiences, um, at least in under the medical model, mm-hmm. is. <coughs> Is mo- I mean, most of the clinic, all of the clinical trials exclude people with history of psychotic disorder. Yeah, um, you would be very careful in people where there's a family, a, a significant sure. family history of psychotic illness. Um, I wouldn't necessarily exclude people with a history of um, a chronic pain disorder. But you would want to be aware of it. You know, you wouldn't I, think it was irrelevant I, information. I, I would. Yeah. I don't know if it's routinely collected as part of clinical should. trials, yeah. but I definitely would. And. I mean, there is, there is, I'm aware of one clinical trial that has recently been, is in the early stages of planning in terms of um, looking at the use of psilocybin in people with fibromyalgia, mm-hmm. who, interestingly, psilocybin seems to alter, and this was established by Robin Carhart Harris and David Nutt um, in, in 2012, is there's, uh, psilocybin seems to, delimit the activity of this default mode network so it reduces the connectivity of that normally rigid pathway particularly rigid in people with um with depressive disorders or anxiety disorders but also interestingly it has altered probably strengthened connectivity in people with fibromyalgia Mm -hmm. so there's some thought that psilocybin could have some therapeutic benefit in people with fibromyalgia, and perhaps that would be from a from a pharmacological or or immunomodulatory effect that psychedelics might have. Um, there's a range of of mechanisms by which psychedelics probably operate from a pharmacological perspective, but also from a phenomenological perspective is helping people through work the, through the trauma, history of trauma. That, that, may, yeah. that may be a risk factor for their fibromyalgia. Uh-huh. I think that there's probably a range of different ways in which psilocybin or potentially other psychedelics could be useful. Interestingly, psilocybin and the other classic tryptamines, so um, the, for example, LSD, uh, may have a role, at least anecdotally, in the in the management of headache disorders. So there's a range of headache treatments that we use that act on similar serotonergic pathways that the classic psychedelics do. Um, and so there is there there are some early clinical trials that are starting to look at things like psilocybin for headache disorders like cluster headache and migraine that are traditionally highly chronic, highly disabling, quite resistant to treatment. Um, more common in uh, particularly migraine in women and cluster headache in yeah. in men, um, and and I, I can I, I anticipate that psychedelics will have a role in a in in management of a range of conditions outside of psychiatry. Yeah, I the um, those sorts of conditions as well, and I will link in the show notes. I forget her her name is escaping me now, but I think she's a Dutch lady or an American lady who was. I saw her present some stuff on that because I was interested. I've been worked, you know, we see a lot of that in oral facial stuff in dentistry. But, yes. Um, those, there are a few conditions where you think, okay, from a, maybe taking my 
you know, therapeutic and you know, clinical hat off and saying, okay, w there are opportunities, I think, t to help people with incredibly debilitating conditions. Mm -hmm. You know, anything related to <laughs> that type of pain, you know, wake, alarm clock headache, try that on for size to see how you function, you know, generally yep. after a while. Well, uh, you reminded me of something I haven't mentioned um, is ca cancer pain. I mean, cancer pain is a specific yeah. um, case often with mixed types of pain where there might be inflammatory pain, there might be neuropathic pain. There's often changes in the central nervous system with central sensitization as well where essentially smaller and smaller painful inputs um, generate pain, yeah, yeah, yeah. procedural yeah. interventions, absolutely. Um, and, and I think that, I mean, the, the, some of the strongest research for psilocybin is in people with end-of-life yeah. anxiety, depression, existential distress, whatever you'd like to refer to it as. And I think that um, I can absolutely see a role in psilocybin totally. in, in that context. And I, I'm i not aware that they've actually looked at people's well, pain, despite the fact that 60 to 60 plus percent of people with cancer have chronic it, pain disorders. To be honest, Jeremy, it's just it's a bit less sexy. You know, there's it's more, it's harder to go to your the editor at the New York Times and say, I want to write an op-ed on, you know, cancer sore. And it, this makes it less sore. It's like, tweet that. Don't write an op-ed on that. I want to hear about the, you know, the Midtown woman who had a, you know, met her. Do you know what I mean? Met yes. her, had this amazing experience and met Don Juan, and he said, you know, you know, you're no more dead than I am alive, and blah blah blah. And that's the angle. We've I've heard that angle. There's there's plenty of scope for that. It's just more the dull and laborious work of sort of filling in the areas where it's like, oh no, it's also good for this. But mm -hmm. I, I do think mm -hmm. that from a messaging perspective, there are a few conditions which I've been banging on, I don't know about, simply because I don't see an alignment problem between this being catching people's eye and also accessing people outside of the psychiatric space because I think there's an unspoken consideration which strategically certain politicians or people in power or the general populace is sort of going to treat everything that comes from the world of, oh, these people have, you know, psychiatric conditions with the same, oh, okay, you know, we've heard that. But if it's like, no, John down the road has a really, really bad headache, but he's he does well, you know, he's not, he's, he's all good in the skull, but um, he was just having an axe through his head every morning and now he doesn't and he took this thing, I think it's a mushroom. It's like, that's a different you know, certain right conversation and there might, there's a, we don't know the denominator, we don't know the sort of uh, energy potential within that, that headache related things, orofacial related things that don't seem to have, the, the f and that don't seem to have this overlap with, you know, just flagrant psychiatric mm. conditions. Mm. Fun and we took a message, yeah. we were just chatting about functional neuro neurological disorders, I know mm. they're previously called conversion syndromes, you know, yeah. something which has optics which would catch the attention of people because I'm concerned as well from a messaging perspective. The people think they know, oh, well, everything's been done and it's the same story getting, the same op-eds getting written again and again. And I think we need to find ways to help people but also introduce new arenas of interest, both I clinically and, pa and patient cohorts. I think that the, the challenge with functional neurological disorders amongst many is that the original conceptualization was very much... A psychoanalytic one. So, do you think it's just a wrong framing in a way? It's like a, a category error. In a um, way? 
so for for a proportion of them, I mean, a proportion of them were later found to have tertiary neurosyphilis. Yeah, and just then the, they went off to the infectious disease physicians and the neurologists. And they're like, "You've been sat on a Viennese couch for fucking twenty years. We could have sorted or, this out." Or know, a group right. had MS, multiple yeah, sclerosis, yeah, yeah. and then they went to the neurologist. What a massive and opportunity cost that functions as well. Yeah. Absolutely. So these people were put in asylums. Yeah, we didn't yeah, know yeah. what the underlying neuropathology was. Yeah. And I think that in you know functional neurological symptom disorders are at the end of the day probably a range of different conditions. Yeah. Many of them have psychiatric or psychological underpinnings, but a substantial proportion will probably be siphoned off as we sure. understand the pathology to other medical specialties. Mm-hmm. Um, a good example is something that's happened over the past 20 years is the recognition of a group of conditions called the autoimmune encephalitis, which presented often with florid psychotic symptoms and seizures, right. um, often put down as uh, um, severe conversion disorders or psychotic illness that people were having first episode psychosis. People were um, often treated with antipsychotics, but not really understanding that these were autoimmune conditions where our where antibodies, our own body was attacking vital um, vital receptors in the brain, um, including the NMDA receptor, mm-hmm. incidentally, that we've mentioned previously several times. And, um, and now we understand that these are actually neuropsychiatric conditions with an autoimmune basis. Mm-hmm. And so when these people receive specific treatment, they, get um, they, they substantially improve yeah. it's without, like without traditional psychiatric treatments. So I think that our conceptualization is constantly evolving, yeah. um, but they are fundamentally very challenging conditions to treat. The level of disability associated with these is often greater than mm-hmm. many primary n- neurological disorders. Um, and they can present in a range of different ways. For example, psycho- psychogenic non-epileptic seizures, so non-epileptic seizure activity or speech and swallowing problems or motor weakness or sensory problems. But I really consider them on this spectrum of these medically unexplained syndromes. And I think that chronic fatigue syndrome, yeah. other functional or no, no, nosoplastic pain disorders would would be under this banner as well, including fibromyalgia, because I have a, a, I see a group of people with both functional neurological symptom disorders as well as fibromyalgia. Yeah, and I think there's probably some underlying common, common neuropathology, Going on underpinning there. some of them, and 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 potentially psychiatric or so other psychosocial risk factors. Yeah, so th- that just goes to show, and I should make that point that whilst. You know, I am not a doctor and Jeremy is, but we are not offering specific therapeutic advice and it is absolutely crucial. It just goes without saying, I put this in in the show notes and just, you know, pepper it throughout my content that you cannot make significant changes just because something isn't working without consulting your primary care physician. And I think a lot of these in this field, we're sort of seeing a lot of people who, because of the, the timelines are so blown out, for the normal conventional pathway, they end up going down things and you know other pathways, and it's not. It's when it becomes this trade-off between the person who's going to see someone for some alternative therapy, which is giving them a lot of solace and potentially some val- verifiable improvements. But if they're doing that instead of getting a full, you know, medical triage, because then all of a sudden things can get categorised as something. They're of an entirely different order. That's not the prepotent element, even if it's present. And all of a sudden they... So it's like the quotient of unnecessary suffering can be radically reduced if there's a legitimate multidisciplinary assessment of these conditions to begin with. I think that that it's very easy to miss something very serious. 
you know, I should add that the, the definition of a functional neurological symptom disorder is a neurological symptom in the absence of clear medical explanation or diagnosis. Yep. So the first the first step in order to make that diagnosis is that you need to exclude other neurological other causes. You need to exclude a seizure disorder. You need to exclude a brain tumour. You need to exclude multiple sclerosis. You need to exclude other significant, potentially life-limiting pathology that would be otherwise effectively medically treated. It's a diagnosis um, of exclusion. Yeah, ab- ab- 100%. Yeah, yeah, and and most, most conditions that I treat... Um, are chronic mm-hmm. pain certainly many cases of chronic pain need to be a diagnosis of exclusion you need to exclude really serious things like fractures or tumors yeah. or nerve root impingement or other terrible things um and similarly in psychiatry you actually yeah. pr- you, you need to do a range of blood tests they could have a thyroid problem totally. they could have a brain tumor that's affecting their personality um or their their behavior yeah. um you could there could be a range of other explanations for those for people's presentations and i think that that's really um one of the important roles of doctors in in um in seeing patients of course there's a it brings to mind a book i'm going to link to a book that i would highly recommend it's very enjoyable and on audible saturday by ian McEwen, which tells the story of it's like the stream of consciousness of a brain surgeon going throughout his day and you know he's just got his list of patients and there's just a few people and he, it describes in beautiful detail, Ian McEwan shadowed a brain surgeon for a year, and so the way he can write about it is, you know, is obviously, you know, he's, he's a fantastic writer, but he's clearly got a good understanding of, it's just a well-informed book, but there's a few patients which come to see this brain surgeon, and he's saying how, I did this, you know, pretty bread and butter procedure, <laughs> you know, a lifetime of pain just went away, and then it talks about their back history of how they were getting healed with crystals and all of these things, and, and how he's like, quite livid about that because mm-hmm. it's like had I seen them 15 years ago you know and all of the sort of subsequent chaos that's ensued in their life which compounds over time and spreads out into the into society so I think treating pain as comprehensively and as effectively as possible is one of the the most underrated ways to without being hyperbolic about it, stabilize society because people who are in pain have terrible, horrible, much worse lives than if people, if the same person didn't have pain. It's just... I I completely agree. I think the the challenge is that I feel like I knew almost nothing about pain before I did pain medicine. Yeah. (laughs) My education, and this is shared amongst most of my medical colleagues, is very limited in pain. Do you want some water? Throughout undergraduate. Yeah, yeah, I got yeah, so there's not a lot of um there's there's minimal emphasis on particularly chronic pain, and that's to a degree determined by the fact that to a degree determined by the fact that we don't understand a lot of the mechanisms of chronic pain. Yeah. But so, also that the the formal training on medication options is very limited yeah. and the differences between different medications and and something that I've really only understood is the difference between the different opioids and my entire prescribing practice it's around true. how I use analgesia is completely different from what it was two or five years ago. Really? It's that so much of a shift? Just a, one, a complete 180. So okay. I'm actually using, I don't prescribe any of the typical opioids, so the morphine opioids, things like codeine, morphine, oxycodone, fentanyl, methadone, hydromorphone, there's a range of the typical opioids. When th- th- there's several reasons why, 
Um, but briefly, the evidence for opioids in chronic pain is is minimal Scant at best. At best, yeah. In fact, the evidence is that after four to six weeks that there's no evidence of functional improvement or pain improvement. In fact, there's evidence that when you get people off opioids, their function and pain improves. And if I do need to use opioids, whether it's acute or chronic pain, I'm primarily using, I really only use the atypical opioids. So a group, a smaller group of, of opioids that seem to have lower risks of things like respiratory depression and accidental overdose. But also importantly, this concept of opioid-induced hyperalgesia, so opioid-related increased pain. Okay. Um, and that's like really- Like a paradoxical response where so you take opioids uh, and you're getting absolutely. more pain. Wow. Yeah. So it's, and it was probably first identified in in people on the methadone program. They don't put that in the ads. So, no, they, they they definitely don't. And it's only something that I've really actually been aware of since doing pain medicine. I think so you that just I had aware minimal of this. evidence, no exposure to that. No, entire I had medical uh, no knowledge of 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 its importance and and the differences between the different opioids in contributing to opioid-induced hyperalgesia. There are a range of other issues associated with opioids, particularly the older typical opioids, things like immune suppression, which increases people's risk of certain infections, particularly pneumonia, increases risk of death associated with pneumonia and ICU mm -hmm. emissions. Also a bad side effect. <laughs> possibly increased risk of cancers. And right, let's just let's repeat that because I think that's important for people to understand that's a risk component of the risk profile. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's evidence that the depending on the timing, so one yeah. of the particular studies um, was looking at timing of morphine around breast cancer surgery okay. and the timing of morphine around the breast cancer surgery influenced the risk of having metastatic breast cancer, so spread of breast cancer. And it perhaps is through immune suppression mechanisms. So the, the morphine opioids seem to block really important immune cells called natural killer cells, which are responsible for fighting off certain infections, but also for uh, for identifying and, and killing off abnormal cells, including cancer cells. And this is at a time when people's immunosuppressed, like they're being sort of they're potentially already immunosuppressed through the Absolutely. chemotherapy in order yeah. so, so that they, they yeah, with chemo, dulls yeah. down their, their, their sort of bystander damage in their body and then all of a sudden you're sort of absolutely giving a wee bit of pharmacological top spin through the thing which is much you're potentially influencing their risk of having spread of their cancer now this is early days yeah. and and controversial yeah. um but that's it's an it's a factor that i take sure. into account in seeing people on a long-term opioid therapy and in particular my usual advice is to try to get people off the typical opioids um, in, in fact, it, it's inv almost always. invariably my advice these days. And I use the other atypical opioids. So the atypicals are things like tepentadol, buprenorphine and tramadol occasionally, although that's a bit more hit and miss. Um, but they, they seem to be associated with less risk of respiratory depression and accidental overdose as well as... Um, as well as opioid-induced hyperalgesia. In fact, buprenorphine probably blocks, if not treats, opioid-induced hyperalgesia. Right. So, and, uh, you know, out of uh, the most recent data in 2018 was that there are about 17 or 1,800 drug-related deaths in Australia. Two-thirds of those involved opioids. 70% of those were prescription opioids. And... 80% of, of drug-related deaths are accidental. So yeah. they're, they're not people deliberately taking too much and trying to kill themselves. They're people accidentally 
take they're taking their medications usually as prescribed. The, the, the issue probably is in the other things that they're doing as well in the other behaviours. Sure. So they might have a bit of alcohol, might have their diazepam or other benzodiazepines or other medications that increase risk, so other sedating agents that increase risk of respiratory depression. Um, but the, the highest risk age group was uh, 25 to 34-year-old men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's not surprising really no. when you hear some of the actual, you know, and I'm, I'm sort of, as you're saying that, I'm, I'm colouring out the, you know, applied therapy room discussions about, you know, the person, the sort of anthropomorphosis of I have in my head is, is that guy. We just, you know, we know who, you know, that's her profile. Um, yeah. So we one thing that we've sort of circled around a little bit, it would be, I think this would be great to just unpack and then I'm conscious of your time as well, just to, to unpack how... We've talked a lot about different types of pain. We've talked about the ways in which acute pain, you know, can become mm-hmm. chronic pain and how the sort of normative processes of, of your body receiving the information that there is a danger, you know, and it helps you. St- if you don't have pain, kids who don't have pain receptors just have a, you know, there's Absolutely a, there's a horrible, it's horrible injuries. I'll, I'll just um, no so teeth because they'll bite through their yeah. tongue. It's just a crazy situation. So, so yeah, in acute pain, in the acute pain setting, it's adaptive and protective. Yeah. In chronic pain, those same behavioural responses, unfortunately, are part of the problem. Which is so analogous to the cognitive element where psych- it stands to reason that you know we're just looking through the microscope at a different sort of twist yep. here where we're talking at the level of receptors and mechanisms of action and a body's normative adaptive process. Yes. Uh, and then all of a sudden how that can become, you know, patholo- pathologized at the level of the individual, not at the yep. level of society yep. saying this yep. is or isn't pathology. Yes. So we've circled around the topic of N- NMDA receptors. I, I think it would be really useful for you to unpack, you know, what they are, how they are implicated in, in pain pathways and how that relates to, you know, your, you know, the work that you're really passionate about moving more into? So the NMDA receptor is a glutamate receptor. It's one of several glutamate receptors. Now, glutamate is a ubiquitous excitatory neurotransmitter. So it's present throughout the brain and the, uh, and the, the nervous system more generally. And the NMDA receptor is critically important for a range of functions, normal functions, including neuroplasticity, including memory formation um, through a mechanism called long-term potentiation. And it's been the receptor dysfunction of the NMDA receptor and, and the glutamate system more generally is associated with a range of neurological and psychiatric disorders as well as persistent pain. In persistent pain, it's considered one of the keystone receptors that is involved in central sensitization. And what what seems to happen is that with persistent pain inputs and release of important neurotransmitters like glutamate, but there's a range of others, in, including inflammatory mediators, is this seems to lead to alteration in, in, in NMDA receptor activity. It keeps it open, so it stays open, and that leads to sensitization of those pain pathways when the NMDA receptor is kept open. Um, and it leads to, in the setting of persistent pain, this central sensitization is very similar to memory, to this long-term potentiation concept. 
and so that lower and lower inputs actually start precipitating pain, generating pain signals even potentially in the absence of peripheral pain inputs so that you develop spontaneous pain or things that, that shouldn't be painful become painful, what we call allodynia or allodynia, and things that should only be mildly painful start to become very painful that we call hyperalgesia. I've mentioned hyperalgesia in the setting of opioid, uh, uh, typical opioids. Um, there are a range of other hyperalgesic compounds like alcohol, for instance, is strongly hyperalgesic, um, particularly the day after an alcohol, alcohol <laughs> use. So acutely might yeah. be pain relieving, but yeah. the following day actually increases pain yeah. sensitivity, interestingly. Mm-hmm. But the NMDA receptor seems to be this critically important central or keystone receptor that's involved in, these pro- in, these, uh, in the transition from acute to chronic pain and in this concept of central sensitization. And central sensitization is a really broad term for a range of changes that happen in the central nervous system, in the brain and spinal cord, um, that that perpetuate persistent, that perpetuate the pain state um, and that increase the, sens- the sensitivity of the, the nervous system to, to pain. And so the, interestingly, there are some medications that seem to act that seem to block on this NMDA receptor. And one of the, the, the best categorised one is, is ketamine. So KenMD, uh, sorry, ketamine is a, an NMDA receptor antagonist, um, specifically a non-competitive antagonist. But essentially what ketamine does is it by, by blocking the, this receptor is we think that we're, we're closing the receptor, to put it simply, and reducing the transmission and the sensitivity of, of those pain pathways. And interestingly, we know that ketamine, um, through its activity at the NMDA receptor, also seems to impact on opioid-induced hyperalgesia. So it reduces opioid-induced hyperalgesia, it treats it, and it also seems to re- it's a treatment for uh, opioid withdrawals and also alcohol withdrawals. Um, and it's a it's potentially a very useful therapeutic compound. Now... It's more complex than the, than the NMDA receptor when it comes to ketamine um, in that we don't really know how ketamine has antidepressant properties. It's possibly, it is partly related to the NMDA receptor, but there's a range of studies that also implicate other receptors that ketamine acts on, is like opioid FHD, receptors. Is it a 5 hd 2 a So it, it's, it has, it's multimodal. So it yes. blocks NMDA receptor. It also blocks some opioid receptors, also blocks um, some monoamine receptors, including serotonergic receptors. So it probably yeah, has a range of different effects and different metabolites have different, different um, effects as well. So... But there are other NMDA receptor antagonists, so fencyclidine or speci- uh, sorry PCP or angel yeah. dust is one of the common ones that was used as a model for psychotic disorders um, and is, is a widely abused drug, particularly overseas. Um, I'm sure it's available here as well. And then there's a medication, incidentally, that's also approved for dementia for Alzheimer's disease called memantine that... that less potently blocks the NMDA receptor and blocks it slightly differently um, but doesn't seem to have antidepressant properties interestingly but does seem to have some anti-neuropathic pain properties mm-hmm. so it, it I occasionally use memantine for people when they haven't responded to other treatments it's off-label but I use it occasionally in people with um, for example fibromyalgia mm-hmm. What have, your, what have your experiences pain. of using memantine with people with fibromyalgia? What have you seen? Um, 
I think that the response seems to be delayed. It takes about six to eight weeks to get up to a treatment dose. Right. Um, I would say that people that when when people do respond is they say that they there's there's they say that they feel better, and I notice that they appear to be brighter in their affect. Now I don't. There's no good evidence that it's an antidepressant, but I wonder whether there are there are pro-cognitive changes associated with blocking the NMDA receptor. Um, and I do think that there are probably moderate benefits in terms of people's um, energy levels. I've had a few yeah. patients who have told me they feel more energetic. There's another... I mean, I don't know if this, is, this just comes to my mind when, um, you know, we're talking about the sort of improvements of people as their pain maybe, you know, is being treated in this sort of more bespoke way that they might not have decent perceptual changes but they might be functioning a lot better and if you're measuring the function is improving and that sort of so I don't think you should be in any way dismissive of that a psychiatrist being able to assess you know the Mm. affect of someone Mm. as they walk in the room like that's you guys are well you know experts at doing that so if you're noticing that brightness then that's most likely you know there's there's a fire to that that smoke and I I think that there's a that's that's a that's a good point Niall because that is a limiting factor in lots of clinical trials is they're not looking at more complex measures of people's quality of life and well-being and they're looking at pain scores on a simple linear chart but they're not looking at much more complex markers of people's function and quality of life necessarily of course some some studies do but Uh i think that there's a lot of limits in terms of the current evidence um a good example of that is the cannabinoids sure yeah yeah there's um which so, is a whole other <laughs> other podcast, but the, the the process of helping people to see that they are getting better before they perceive that they are getting better seems to be a little piece in the puzzle. And in preparation for this, I heard a, a talk by someone, a MD with a pain background, and he was saying, you know, sometimes you need to hold space for people to say you don't perceive that you're getting better, but we've done you know a barrage you know barrage of tests that show that you are functioning better. And I wonder, even as people start to function slightly better. I'm just thinking with a person with those diffuse pain, uh, pro- pro- uh, you know, pr- presentations out out there in their world, they're probably starting to really upregulate their interpersonal world quite significantly because someone who comes back who's functioning a lot better in the office, and it's like, you know, I don't mean to caricature, but it's like Sharon's really pulling her weight this week, whereas last week she couldn't type a thing. People are responding a lot more to you, and it's this is, you know, this is muddy, hard to delineate, but people who've experienced pain for a very long time who all of a sudden start to function slightly better, I would imagine that their their world starts to, you know, give them this interpersonal feedback where they're like, oh, this feels good and the serotonergic system might be second order impacted through that process. I, I think that, um, the you know, one of the most powerful markers of a patient improvement is really what the patient says it's what they collect what what people in the rest of their life say. say yeah um and collateral history is often a better indicator, indicator. Than, <laughs> yeah, yeah. than the than the, the person themselves uh-huh. um and so i i i you know i really value having input from family members and and other um important people in that in patients lives in that they can give me a lot more information often than the person themselves and the patient themselves, but they're also very good markers of improvement. Um, not always, but often they will they will give me a much more um, that that external perspective is extremely helpful in making my clinical yeah. assessments. Yeah, it's like a corroborating evidence to a certain extent, and as long as it's, um, the, I'm sure the clients are delighted to hear that. Um, 
yeah, I just think the clinical, I'm so excited about how the clinical care model can be augmented with things whereby you can, it doesn't mean that you're collecting data and not improving the patient, you know, someone with fibromyalgia who has their life partner beside them who's giving you filling out the questionnaire with their consent in front of you saying you know Mm -hmm. how have things been i don't know how you know the nitty-gritty of it but to hear that to sort of have that experience of hearing how you are improving uh, in terms of your functionality and you know i think we feed off each other's affect affect is contagious in a way like omicron doesn't have a you know Mm -hmm. doesn't hold a hold a candle to as as woo woo as that might might sound um, so I'm, I'm conscious we've got like there's just 101 things and, and we've discussed off mic how we want this to be an iterative conversation and to upskill people who are struggling with these things because psychedelics are not going to be a magic bullet and they're not coming tomorrow you know in any sort of meaningful you know just walk down to your local GP and, and you know you'll be on the pathway so we've got to give people information I agree. I, I think, this, and this is probably a controversial statement for some of our listeners, but I think that in some ways that the the fact that the TGA didn't downschedule from Schedule 9 prohibited substance to Schedule 8 regulated or restricted substance is probably... It's, I, I don't think it was unexpected, in all no. honesty. I, I think that it was probably inevitable is that if they did decide to down to down schedule it it would be highly unusual and well outside the norms mm-hmm. of the usual processes for a drug to be approved i think that it it's an opportunity in my opinion to really bolster how these services and regulatory frameworks are going to operate i think that it's very important that we get this right I think that otherwise otherwise we'll end up in another situation like they did in the 50s and 60s where it was prohibited after, um, you know, because of unregulated use. Um, I, I'm not saying that the medical model is necessarily the be-all and end-all, but I think that it's, it's – particularly if you think about the analogy, the similarities with medicinal cannabis is that it's probably the, the initial step to a much more comprehensive – um, legal and regulatory framework. I anticipate that there will be a the results from the MDMA for PTSD trial from MAPS in about 2023, the beginning of 2024, and I think that the FDA will move quite quickly to, to approve MDMA for PTSD, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy specifically. And... I think that it's possible that psilocybin would be approved under similar circumstances for treatment-resistant depression and for end-of-life, um, so palliative care-type psych- yeah. psychological um, difficulties, adjustment disorder, grief, existential distress. Um, I think that psilocybin is likely to be approved in those indications in the latter part of this decade. Yeah. But I think that going too quickly would be the death knell I think that there's likely to be some really adverse events. I think that it would be a free-for-all. I think that there would be people that be would be become involved in the field who should not be involved. Yeah. Um, and that I think that we need to look at this next few years as a real opportunity to get this right. It's a, it's a fantastic opportunity um, for people to sort of say, okay, these are coming. Think of it like, um, you know, we're all making, we all know how to make our little side dish. Some are more important than others to the main meal. You know, the centerpiece, the, the sort of spit on a roast is, it's when's that coming? Oh, it's going to take a bit longer. It's like, okay, well, why don't in the interim, 
you know, the people over there who are learning, you know, how to make a Caesar salad, why don't you go to the station where you learn how to, you know, make the the, the other things, the other accoutrements. And so by the time it gets here, the centerpiece that we're all very excited to eat and cook and know what to do with, it's like you have a working knowledge. You don't mm-hmm. have to be an expert, but, you know, I've been given a bit of a, without being sycophantic, a sort of a masterclass in how to just think more systematically about the pharmacology of these things. And we've, we haven't gone near the phenomenology intentionally because yes. there's an area where we need to just acknowledge, you know, d- MDs go through significant amounts of training and everybody has their area of expertise and we need mm-hmm. to understand enough about each other's worlds yeah. to hold each other accountable, to be informed by each other and to make legitimately synergistic accompaniments because anybody I think who's paying attention realises that it isn't ridiculous to assume that all of the people who now are wanting psychedelics and who the mainstream media is trying to sort of you know hype them up are a going to be appropriate or b going to get benefits or c not going to need anything in uh, in an adjunctive way that's just there's a very rare person and i think those people have probably already found their way to it you know the person who had a whole barrage of symptoms who had trauma you know, one instance took some MDMA cut with who God knows what, went to a nightclub, had a transformative experience, and now they're all good. They've they've exited the cycle. So I think the types of people that we're seeing, it's not the modal, it's not the average person who we're all scratching our heads going, we don't have really good treatment options. Anybody in their right mind isn't thinking, oh, well, you know, I can't wait for a second. I can't wait for psilocybin to be available in the PBS because that's going to comprehensively solve the problem. It's just not. It's just, I just don't think that's, it's just not a sophisticated enough way to think about how to help people achieve them, optimize their well-being. And I think that, um, you know, I'm not under any illusions. I know that there are always psychedelic ceremonies that happen reasonably, yeah. you know, locally. Um, I think that, that that there's a group of people that have already found these treatments through their sure. own alternative pathways. Um the, the types of people that Niall and I are referring to are complex groups of people with significant trauma that has, despite multiple treatment modalities, has not responded or is left with significant disabling residual symptoms mm-hmm. um, or has, who has not been able to undertake long-term psychotherapy or trauma-based therapies because of the severity Access. of their symptoms. Um, and I think that... These are, these are people that are likely to need significant assessment and preparation if they are to go through psych- psychedelic-assisted therapies, mm-hmm. that a proportion of them, despite all of that preparation, will not be suitable Yeah. Um, for a range of reasons. It could be medical reasons. It could be um, because of their psychological state. Um, it, it, it may be because of personal preference once they understand some of the experience. I think that's very reasonable to, to say that I'm not... I, I don't want to have that experience. Um, and I also anticipate that this group of people will... What, one or two or three treatments is it may give them significant symptom improvement, but a proportion of them won't have, a, won't have improvement and a proportion will have relapse of symptoms soon afterwards mm-hmm. and that fundamentally these, these will remain complex patients with ongoing need for mental health supports but some absolutely and they'll, they'll fare better so we can raise the we can raise the floor and we can help some people to just be like i'm i'm better 
Mm-hmm. You know, I do think it's important to say there will be some subs, and that, that but that applies already. You know, you take people people on antipsychotics, and some portion will get radically better, and, and many won't. But yes. you know, then all of a sudden it becomes people's personal bias that they bring to the table about which side of that story they want to talk about when in actual fact you have to sort of talk about yeah about i would always caution people that um that it's i think it's not unreasonable for people to have an aim to come off medications that they're using yeah. for depression or anxiety or um or other mental health issues i i would say that um that it's important to to look at psychedelics potentially as a tool to help them improve their psychological health but that sometimes they may need to continue with the medications that they're taking although there might be other uh, details that are important to consider in terms of whether they can safely have medication during their psychedelic treatments i think that that's something that's very going to be very complex to address if we do need to take people off medications in order for them to undergo psychedelic therapies but i think that um, there's a group of there's probably going to be some medications that we can continue some that will have significant interactions either in reducing the effectiveness of psychedelics or because they would have significant interactions in being dangerous if used together yeah. um, but there's going to be a proportion of people that even with psychedelic experiences they still need to continue with their medications and that's okay in fact the evidence in ketamine is that uh, for example with ketamine is that it may improve people's response to certain antidepressants um, ketamine, interestingly, because of its uh, because of its unique pharmacology, it generally can be used pretty safely with um, with antidepressants. Although, for example, the use of lamotrigine or benzodiazepines, like Valium drugs, seems to reduce the antidepressant effects of ketamine. Right. So, all of these are important considerations in 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 understanding people's suitability for therapies, whether it's from psychological perspective or medical perspective. I think what would be interesting if you'd, you know, as we'd mentioned, it would, I think it would be helpful, but I'd love for you to help me finesse this, to to have a, a chat where we sort of more, I suppose, squarely focus on the... Cl- it sounds so... <laughs> it, it sounds so mawkish, but, you know, the client or the patient journey, you know, from how someone, you know, in a more sort of uh, nuts and bolts way goes through uh, the the ketamine procedure because I think we can talk about that in a much more open way than say other psychedelics which you've alluded to are being regularly used you know not far from here to be honest um, which is fine and, and I absolutely I'm going to be talking to people along those lines and there's a whole field of expertise that I'm keen to learn about from practitioners who work in those spaces but we we have the capacity to sort of give a more a sort of more blow by blow step by step uh, client journey from you know someone arrives at your clinic because there are so many offshoots like what you've just mentioned there about the attenuation of the you know anxiolytic effects of benzodiazepines that's not going to be like just a, the odd person who's coming not, to your clinic like that's quite a square people I say are on benzos. That, that doesn't get a lot of you know so it's, it's a, I suppose it's a way to us just almost like position people and say this is what would happen and this is what would happen and this is just what it actually looks like mm. on mm-hmm. the, the shop floor yeah because I don't know how much people can sort of it's not you're just getting bombarded with information that it seems to be have some it's like, what is the agenda behind that information? Why are people pushing? These are compounds mm-hmm. that are being utilized by practitioners in 
models which are not radically different, what are we finding out about that? And what can the average person expect if they go through one of these pathways? Yes. You know? So so the first question really is where who is the referrer? Yeah. So different referrers will res- will refer in for different indications, but the majority of patients that receive ketamine infusions um, from from my practice or the practice that I work within with another one of my senior colleagues. Um, so patients will the, – the most common reason that patients are referred for ketamine is for treatment-resistant depression yeah. and a smaller proportion for post-traumatic stress disorder and chronic pain disorders, especially chronic pain conditions – uh, would include the most common chronic pain disorders would include migraine or other headache conditions that haven't responded to other treatments, neuropathic pain disorders, um, chronic back pain or other um, other persistent pain conditions, chronic abdominal pain. There's a range of indications. Most of the people that are referred in for ketamine with treatment resistant depression are referred in by their psychiatrist. Right. So Oftentimes they've had multiple psychiatric opinions before yeah. they come in for ketamine infusions. And the usual story is that they've tried many antidepressants, often a handful at least, in addition to augmenting strategies, so things like antipsychotics, mood stabilisers like lithium, and a proportion will have also had electroconvulsive therapy and repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation therapy. So you're looking like decades long history M- by the time. The, ma- the majority have very chronic illness. Yeah. Um, Probably you could say many of them have had depression longer than um, than than they've been well. Yeah. Um, and so once they once they're referred into the service, there's a decision made depending on how complex the case is, whether they need to have a further assessment from from myself or my colleague, or whether they can go through the ketamine screening process. And they receive an opinion as part of that, but it, but the the if they see myself or my um, or my other senior colleague, then we will often do a dual pain or psychiatric opinion, depending on the presentation, and then we'll determine sort of at that level whether they're indica- whether they have a suitable indication that they might respond to ketamine assist uh, ketamine therapy. Unfortunately, the model doesn't involve ketamine assisted psychotherapy. Um, although we hope in future that it will involve that, unfortunately, the model, the funding model, is just not there currently, yeah. and and there's and there's very little idea about um, suitable training and credentialing and how that may actually operate. But well, that's something that we're very keen to explore. On. I think I'm going to actually link because it's just pinging my brain. You know, th- I've heard in different parts, different uh, places, some people discussing that. And I think it would be useful. I'll just link in the show notes to a few things. I know Dick Schwartz has talked about that because he's actually been through it. Um, so I'll link to a few bits and bobs because I know that you can't really speak to that you know, sure. in the way that we're talking about right now. But yes, it's also an area that I'm super excited about because I think it's, you know, who, who knows? <laughs> Let's not be hyperbolic, but there's definitely components for augmenting things yep. in that space. Agreed. So, um, and, and I mean, from, from that perspective, but also we do have some... Um, some other augmenting strategies that we're trying to implement, like music, mm-hmm. uh, like some v- visuals on a on a on a screen, and we encourage patients to bring things that they would find valuable during that experience, or potentially help them um, if they do have any dysphoric experiences yeah. associated with ketamine infusion. And it also makes me realise a little bit more, 
you know, why this sort of became the, you know, the sort of fiefdom of the anaesthetists to begin with, because that's sort of, you know, giving people an infusion over time, calibrating it with against all the person's risk factors and weight and all yes. these things is just very much there. Yeah, ket- ex- exactly. And uh, ketamine, you know, is is considered one of the essential medicines from by the World, World Health Organization. It was used extensively on in battlefield, in conflict, yeah. because it, it's um, safer in the context of uh, not not contributing to significant respiratory depression and being able to maintain a person's blood pressure um, compared to the other general anaesthetics which depress root breathing and also depress blood pressure. And so there are a range of advantages for ketamine as an anaesthetic, but we're not talking about dissociative anaesthetic doses. We're yeah. t- fundamentally talking about sub-anaesthetic doses. And um, that's an important difference. A now, massively important difference because we're in a totally different phenomenological world and a different use case and a, and a different temperament of person who's going to, I think, gravitate towards the saying, okay, this is my sweet spot and this is my mojo right now, you know? Yeah. Um, I think that bears, I think that's important to state because it doesn't, just yes. because someone's like, I've been on, I've worked for the military for the idea for many years and I just bang this in and, mm-hmm. you know, and it's amazing and I know what I'm doing and I can play it like I'm ringing a bell. That's fine, but there are so many different elements which are going to come out of that and how comfortable are you going to be, <laughs> you know, working with people through these these more fuzzy components at the sort yes. of anesthetic dose. So, I mean, they, all of the patients have monitoring from two two nursing staff yeah. um, and there's always a doctor on site. Yeah. And we're hoping to add or augment the experience over time, and and we are collecting a significant amount of data, um, pre you know in terms of baseline screening and then during and then following treatment, and I think that there'd be a lot of really useful research project re- research projects yeah, um, and data analysis that that will um, that will be able to be derived from the data we're collecting. I think, I think I'm so sorry to interrupt because I just think it would be a good point if people are listening and they're keen. You know, this is available. This is you know. Uh, happening right now. Jeremy's working in this sphere right now. Might, we'll, we'll put all these in the in the bio, etc. But it might be a good point to have in the, the show notes when you're referring to we and the clinics and various places. You know where where is this happening for you? Where are you doing this on a weekly so, basis? So I work uh, part time in the private system yeah. at a place called the Anodyne Centre yeah. in Subiaco, and also work part time, also primarily in pain medicine mm-hmm. in in the public system at a major yeah. tertiary hospital. Yeah. So this is a public element, but. Yep. This is happening, you know, privately in, in Perth. Yeah, exclusively in the private system, yeah. virtually. Yeah. It's very, very challenging to to access ketamine infusions in the public system. It's very dependent on catchment areas. Um, and it's also limited in terms of the the availability generally. Mm-hmm. We're gonna I think we're gonna have future discussions on pack and <laughs> comparing the different paradigms and how how much they're gonna lend themselves to the, the way that we would like to, you know do these sorts of things. Yeah. So I'm, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but you were, you know, you were saying you have a doctor on site, but you're looking at ways of them sort of finessing the, the approach in terms of the... Yeah, I think that we need to do that as part of a clinical trial. So yeah. I'm very lucky to be working with Emiria um, and and have been very happy to have a connection with Michael Winlow, Dr. Michael Winlow, who's the managing director at Emiria and providing some some consulting advice for them around around some of their interests in the psychedelic space and they're very interested in in diversifying and looking at other treatment modalities and actually implementing and exploring some of these these novel therapeutic strategies 
Um, and that would include things like ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, but also a range of other things and a range of other indications that haven't really been significantly explored, but I think would be we would be able to derive a lot of data from the research that we're collecting at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, conditions that, that where ketamine has been minimally used. The problem traditionally and, and ongoingly is that the response from ketamine for these indications I've mentioned has been of short duration, often on the realm of weeks up to a few months. You can probably prolong the response with serial treatments but no one really knows what the what the mechanisms are. No one really knows what the right doses are for different patients. Um, we have general rules. We also don't know what maintenance therapy protocols are going to look like. It's difficult for us to predict who will respond to ketamine treatment. Um, but certainly in my experience, is a substantial proportion of people do get substantial benefit. Yeah. The, the issue is how do we prolong that response or or improve the the rate of response or remission is there excuse my ignorance on this but is there decent and or preliminary work on eating disorders and ketamine not that i'm not that i'm particularly cognizant of in all honesty just pings my mind to think you know we've got this sort of proprioceptive element and then I'm chatting to Chris Leatherby who's a former guest you know the philosophers sort of approach the sense of the way that we can conceptualize the sense of self I think one part of it that gets missed is you know there are there is the sense of self and people think that that is some abstract thing and they map that onto the default mode network and whatever the case Mm -hmm. may be and then they get deeper into the neuroscience as their you know intellect and training allows but, you know, there's a physical sense of self. So there's a sort of, mm-hmm. a, you know, an abstract sense of self which moves through interpersonal space. But there's absolutely a physical sense of self which moves through, you know, the the objective world, you know, the yep. na- state of nature. And a sort of visceral recalibration of what your sense of self is like is something which I, it's the one area where, <clears throat> as a psychotherapist, I'm like, this, I don't know, how to even begin to it's a very very difficult thing to treat and it's horrible to watch because it impacts young mm-hmm. people who can then I agree you know who then die within uh, and um, I just see that as something whereby you know uh, th- there's just th- some foundational shift in people's appreciation of their visceral sense of self is something which is not at the cognitive it's not accessible at the cognitive level to stand someone in front of a mirror who's in a BMI where everybody is, the endocrinologist is deeply concerned and say, you're not overweight. Is everyone who has said that once in their, you know, rudimentary training accidentally sees that it's just, you're just, you're not impacting them in a way that is going to help at all. And I wonder, is ketamine even being considered in that sphere? I, I'm sure it is. It's not something that I've explored, in all honesty. I'm yeah. not aware of the clinical sure. research with eating disorders in, and ketamine. I would imagine that it has been explored. Yeah, yeah. There are important differences with ketamine compared to the classic and other psychedelics. Sure. I mean, they're all fundamentally different drugs, yeah, yeah. Um, although we lump them all together, together as right. classic and atypical or dissociative anesthetic or empathogens and yeah. tactogens, but they're all fundamentally quite different drugs. I do think that ketamine has differing effects on the default mode network compared to the classic psychedelics, okay. so that are probably important for those more complex issues like self-concept and, and ego um, and it could involve um, things like uh, the physical sense of self. Yeah. I 
would just raise with ketamine in the setting of eating disorders is medical issues that that are a factor for people with severe eating, eating disorders. Yeah. So particularly cardiovascular instability, um, which would probably be a contraindication to the use of ketamine. So that would be yeah. a, that would be a factor. I suppose one thing, and again, I'm I'm just you know spitballing in my own head here, but yeah. it's more a case of you know there seem to be quite strong predictive components of someone who's who's on a certain trajectory which is you know probabilistically quite likely and then you know they're in a very different metabolic position by the time when people yes. are really concerned yeah, but true. if you were a betting man you could say well you know we're here now and then all of a sudden that sliding scale of um you know, contraindications from a sort of physiological perspective mm-hmm. becomes relevant because yeah. to analogous to that, when people start talking about the neurotoxicity of MDMA, I want to always make sure that people understand that from a functional neuroanatomical perspective, comp, you know, 10 years of PTSD has neurotoxic, neurotoxic effects, which can be I seen. I completely in, agree. And so yeah. there's a sort of, it's not versus nothing. So it's a case yeah. of... Look, certainly intervention would be the, the ideal scenario. Yeah. Uh, um, the, the the challenge, I guess, is the onset of eating disorders and many mental illnesses as well is in childhood. And yeah. by the time that they would get to formal services, I mean, never mind all of the issues with lack of eating disorder services uh, in Australia, yeah. but particularly in WA, um, by the time that they get into services, often they already have chronic illness. Mm-hmm. They may have... They may also uh, there are there are obvious issues with giving psychedelics to, to children. Yes, um, getting that through an ethics committee would be <laughs> yeah. would be a formidable task. That's that's sort um, of career suicide right so now. It, yeah, it, as could, well, it could well be. Yeah. Um, although I think it's a well worth thing in looking at early intervention in eating disorders and the totally. use of psychedelics. And I'm aware that they're doing similar research with classic psychedelics, yes. particularly psilocybin. And um, I can certainly. Uh, theoretically understand how it could be yeah. could be useful, but I'm sure it's a very, very challenging incredibly field fraught. to navigate in terms of uh, um, implementing these treatments in a, in, a really, in a really unwell group with often highly chronic illness, high risk from a medical and psychiatric perspective. Um, it's, it's not an area that I have to say that I've got a huge amount of experience mm. in. It's very difficult to get experience in eating disorders yeah. in, in WA unless you have um, very specific Placements, sets, yeah. particularly in childhood in child services, um, it's very challenging to get access to training in eating disorders. Yeah, I just mentioned it because those early intervention, you know, you catch psychosis early on, and you know, it can totally change the trajectory. But maybe I'm wrong on the data. Maybe it's just my own anecdotal experience being heavily biased. But it's like you catch someone at 17 and they, you know, it's like, oh cool, we've caught them, you know, there's all these factors which we think were risk factors, they've been picked up and, you know, now they're in a course of CBT. <laughs> and you sort of think, I don't know how much of a like, dent to the trajectory that's necessarily going to make when we're 25, when all of a sudden the, 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 the body in front of you quite literally precludes to the use of te- techniques which might have made some real, mm-hmm. I'm talking like the level of treatment is not at the level of physiology; it's the level yeah. of ontology, from a from often from a from a from an alcoholic from an addiction perspective and from an eating disorders perspective. I can't; I've never been able to throw other things and say that will reliably stick. Mm-hmm. It's like a minimum effective dose. Just because a minimum, just because a dose is very high, doesn't mean mm-hmm. it's not the minimum effective dose. Well, I've I've got a fair amount of experience in early episode psychosis uh-huh. um, services, and 
the proportion of people taking their antipsychotic therapy after admission yeah. after one week it's was ten percent. Really? So the and the rate of relapse. Once you once you have one episode of psychosis, that is your. If you miss that chance to manage that condition and you have a following relapse, the 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 likelihood that that becomes a chronic illness is extremely high. Is you've really only got one opportunity with a psychotic disorder. Once you have more than one episode of psychosis, you're, you're, in, you're in a lot of trouble. You know, I agree with you. These are highly neurotoxic conditions. Yeah. Um, and psychotic, certainly, we know that so, that there are profound changes in 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 the function of the brain uh, associated with psychotic illness, and that you really have a, a, a very uh, narrow opportunity after that episode that you need to tr- manage it very assertively. Or I think that there are public the there are probably public services that are best placed to do that the with case management model. Head, headspace um, actually, headspace to, absolutely. The intervention. I was yes. very impressed by their work to pick things up, yep. and we we were well first to. to I thought this absolutely. Was really headspace good. is really the the um, the leaders mm-hmm. in early intervention for mm-hmm. psychotic disorders, um, and there's there's good evidence that if people stay well for those first twelve months, and that may that usually involves staying on an antipsychotic therapy for all of their uh, all of the adverse issues associated with them. But my experience was that if you could keep people on their treatments for a for an extended period, is that it would do very well. Much, they would get much back better. to work very much. Yeah, it's like a different you two monozygotic twins and one takes it and one doesn't. You know what I mean? And it's just or, like or if you different look, lives. Yeah, and it's exactly. And I think that um, you, my experience again, this may be controversial for some of the listeners, but if you could get someone onto one of the the injectable depot antipsychotics at the very beginning, they did much, much better. Yeah, I, um, I They totally would just stop agree. their tablets when they get home and then they continue smoking weed or they would continue yeah. um, with their with their going out and having lots of sleep deprivation and continuing with the other psychosocial stresses. But if you manage to stabilise someone on a depot therapy earlier, yeah. they did much better and you could keep them out of hospital much more effectively. You'd reduce the risk of relapse substantially. Um, I acknowledge that there are a lot of um, adverse effects associated with with these treatments, but I think it's a sort of it having, can be helpful having a sort of sophisticated, sophisticated, but a more nuanced and a more like good faith discussion about early intervention more generally in the world of you know have an actuarist, a, you know, an epidemiologist and a psychiatrist who does longitudinal studies and be like. Let's let's run the let's run the numbers here. You know, on a poker player, there is like, good evidence just, that you're the gonna, depots work like, better. Ninety percent. If we don't do X, then Y will happen, and Y is absolutely awful. And it just occurs to me that you know now I'm really getting a bit joining the sort of peripheral dots. But mm-hmm. there's a lot. There's bound to be. Here's a good PhD for someone to do to put together a really good, comprehensive understanding of the ecological data of what happens to the neurodevelopment of young people who've taken psychedelics. Witty people, you know, and <clears throat> people in the Santo Daime church. There's loads of, it's it's not like we're, we're, it's not like we're advocating, it's like me and Jeremy are gonna go out here and start like injecting, you know, girls who, who might be fussy eaters when they're 12 or something, you know. But there is a lot of ecological data out there which would then give some, you know, a sort of empirical basis for having the types of discussions that we're talking about simply having those discussions to say the outcomes by mid-20s to 30s for some of these conditions, if they're not, it's not just about early intervention, it's about the, what actually happens. You know, what is, the, you know, yeah. we're primary prevention totally. as opposed to secondary. And yeah. do, do we have a good enough 
warning system? Do we have a good enough tracking? Like, what is the psychometric input that's helping us to say, okay, we're going to go a bit more full on here, but this isn't being cavalier. This is why, and this is the sort of alternative story. Do you want from the Commonwealth? I've got to think that they don't. I don't think there's a full understanding of what an extraordinary fiscal return on investment those types of things constitute. Well, well, there are some naturalistic sort of observational studies looking at the normal population who sure. use psychedelics and certainly that yeah, they yeah. seem to have lower risks of mental health burden, yep. substance use disorders, for example, opioid use. Um, and They're immune to COVID. I, <laughs> <laughs> we won't go into that one. Yeah. Um, but, but they totally are. But absolutely. <laughs> absolutely there are. There seem to be some protective effects yeah. in people that use psychedelics in the, in the normal population. Yeah. And that's that's out there in the ether, and people understand that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I I think there's there's just so many interesting types of people who have probably got these little pockets of information that they already have, you know. And it's just about helping a little hope that I have for the podcast is to say to put that out there and say, look, if you have good data on that, contact. Those people, you know, I put all the information in the show notes because I would certainly like to see that information. And, you know, there's almost like this coming out experience where people from totally different fields, who I think may very well have bumped up against psychedelics per se, uh, in uh, looking at maybe completely different fields and have realized, oh, there's a subset of people here who's... That seems to be the way that a lot of improvements that come out of those big population-sized data studies where they're saying, oh... We can't understand why, you know, this these group of people are resistant to this particular thing, and it's like, oh, it transpires that they have a protective mechanism through their ethnicity or whatever the case may be. You know, there's a sort of retrospective validation of psychedelics that add weight to people saying, look, I took them when I was younger. I know people personally. It's a transformative experience. It's made me, it's plugged me into society way more. I think that's the modal experience, to be honest. It's not that you sort of had them and then were wandering through traffic. Um, yeah, I think that there's a range of mechanisms in which way, in, in, in terms of how psychedelics can be transformative. Um, certainly that connectedness yeah. being one of the important components. Um, the, that, that common description of ego dissolution and, and the, the substantial insight that arises that can be really profound and not about you not, not just about oneself but um, about one's relationships about about other important people in their lives um, about other situations or other more broad global issues totally a sort of inter an interconnectedness that um, I find I don't want to get into this but I find it really problematic and wholly incommensurate with the central message that I have, and I can talk publicly about it because I took truffles in legally in the Netherlands. You know, we are all in this together. It's it's just a revivification of these toy things that you hear in a, you know, Michael Jackson song when he wasn't good anymore, you know, and you just think, but they are actually true. And it's not enough to intellectually know that. If you viscerally feel that and then can enact upon that. And Rick Doblin was asked that que so a question along those lines saying, do we have the capacity to give these to younger people so that we... This was at Breaking Convention a few years ago, and I'm, I'm butchering the question. It was really well phrased, but it was along the lines of, 
when we are sure that there's a, a decent level of safety, we don't need to go over and above anymore, you know, just what would be the normative FDA requirements, what can we start giving them to younger people? Because I believe that the sooner we get at developmental trauma mm -hmm. and the sooner we can piggyback on normal normative brain development interpersonally, that's going to that's where we're going to really start to see the fireworks. And Rick Doblin just sort of had a little bit of a wry smile, and I thought, I, I, it was a brave and controversial question, but, I, you know, my experience working in dentistry was we practiced interceptive orthodontist. We always wanted to piggyback on orofacial development because we knew that if you had to go back in and fix it later on, it was going to be expensive, clunky, just never going to do as good of a job. So... I'm not advocating giving psychedelics to kids per se. No, I understand. Yeah. But it really made me think. I was like, wow. And it's got, I'm sure it's the same in pain where it's like you get at something and it's 20, 30 years mm -hmm. cognitive, you know, potential, like the ossification, really, yeah. at the yes. level of the synapse or the level, yeah. you know, the, level yeah. of the neuron yeah. or the bone or the, or the peripheral brain. pathology, whatever. Yeah, whatever it is. Yeah. The sooner the better. I mean, yeah. is, that, is, that a, is that a. I think wildly it's. Not at all. I think the early intervention is the should be the gold standard but the way that the medical model and health models generally are set up probably reactive. up until recently is it's reactive it's not preventative or proactive mm -hmm. um, there are certainly industries that are that are substantial and and likely to be strongly preventative including exercise based modalities mm -hmm. um but I completely agree with you that the gold standard should be preventative. There are just a range of these these issues that need to be worked through in terms of doing the clinical trials, making sure that these things are safe, understanding whether there are any longer-term neurodevelopmental effects from a perspective harms from these medications um, or, or or other other psychedelics, mm -hmm. and it will be very difficult to get things approved without going through that process. Yeah, no, of course. And we'll, we'll have to sort of eke our way back to, you know, younger and younger ages and different presentations. And But I think it's it's just something to, to, for people to put a pin in and realise that really, really useful research that I think needs to be done that people can do right now is link up with organisations like the Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Start collecting this ecological data of, you know, these people had mentorship in psychedelics. These people in their first semester had a discussion. You know, if you take a thousand young people who start a university and say, we're going to give you the honest information about psychedelics. We're not pro or against. We're just going to say, these are the risk factors. These are the things that it can precipitate. If your cousin, if your brother has schizophrenia, don't be taking a fucking tab every week, you know, and expect to be all good. And then track those people and have large enough samples where you can start to then have, you know, valid data to say, look, this isn't, this isn't causative data, it was correlational, and it's ecological, and I know there's issues with that, but it adds weight so that when it does come time to have those types of discussions, they don't sound mad or radical. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. So there's a lot of work to be done to lay the groundwork yeah, from agreed. a policy and, and an epidemiological perspective. Um, look, I am conscious of we are both lucky to have baby-free days at the minute. <laughs> um, and I'm just so keen to keep discussing different things with you because we could just go on so Very many Very happy to. Directions. I appreciate the invitation. Yeah. Oh, you're more than welcome. Um, 
I'd like to dig, you know, I'd like to sort of in the future dig into, you know, really getting into the granularity of what, you know, with a benign government and X amount of money you would do from a ketamine perspective, because I think that would be very interesting to get your perspective. But in the interim, if people want to find out more specifically about not just your work per se, like we link to all of those things, but useful tools, it could be a book, it could be a podcast, it could be anything where you're like, I think this should be part of the canon of understanding for people that are interested in this space. Do you have anything, that you, you know, books that you generally refer people to or talks or, you know, is there something which you think would be useful for people? No one's sort of putting you on the spot, but... Look, one, th- one book that I've read recently that I think was really very helpful for me um, was I read Chris Leatherby's book, yeah. who I know that has been a previous... Um, previous guest on your podcast uh, that's that was a really enjoyable book to read that book uh, Chris Leatherby it's the philosophy of psychedelics it's by Oxford University Press I'll link to it he also got a, good, a shout out a while ago on the Matthew Johnson sorry the Andrew Huberman podcast and that was through Matthew Johnson so he's really clearly in the in the ears and thoughts and minds of people at a at moving the needle in the sort of main centres in the states but particularly which I think is really I'm very pleased to hear because the way he lays out his um, argument is so accessible uh, and I think he should have an I mentioned him I think he should have an audiobook version <laughs> because like you say you know we've got this brilliant opportunity to be able to listen to things in a way that we just don't have time nowadays in our you know modern society to sit down with a book who has time yeah. So, yeah. Or, or to read through yeah. a paper so I think anyone listening who has stuff that they Another way you can benefit this this sort of field is to just start transcribing audio, audio versions of stuff and sending them around because I will listen to them, but I just don't have time to read a lot of the time. So we'll put a pin in that book and um, I think it might even be interesting to have you and him on a podcast in the future together. Well, I'd be very happy to yeah. meet him. Yeah, yes, yeah, so we'll, we'll see if he's, he's keen to do that. Um, Listen, thank you so much for your time and um, I just really appreciate your work and I'm very keen to sort of explore and see a little bit more about what you do um, because I think amongst all the, between all the, the, the neuroreceptors and, the, you know, the discussions about policy, etc., etc., I think one medicament which is pretty much always indicated is, is twee is the sounds hope and, you know, there's a lot of people out there who don't feel hope but if you're listening to this, if you've been struggling with pain or any of its associated you know, downstream impacts, just understand that things are moving, things are in place. You know, there are tools, and it's highly unlikely that you have exhausted... I know you probably feel that way, but it is highly unlikely that you have exhausted all of the things which are at your disposal. So um, just watch this space. We'll be chatting a little bit more about pain and its psychedelic interface in the future. So thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. you enjoyed that conversation and a big thanks again to Jeremy for being just so open with his thought process and such a sort of wealth of information about a lot of different topics and that is I think the first of many conversations. One thing which Jeremy has subsequently contacted me about which he would like included as a resource 
is um, something that he said he didn't mention in the in, in the interview in terms of recommending books, and that was uh, John Verveke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis series on YouTube. He says it is arguably, and I quote, one of the most meaningful series I've ever watched. It's essentially a university-level course exploring the history of philosophy and cognitive science of enlightenment and transformative experiences in which psychedelics is, of course, nested. He says he can't recommend it enough and suggests it's linked in the notes, which it indeed is. Um, In terms of other housekeeping news, we have a few exciting guests coming up. Um, Sean Duffy, the CEO of Little Green Pharma, and Simon Baron-Cohen, one of the world experts in the study of autism. And we will be using that as a launchpad discussion for future um, discourses around how autism is potentially going to interface with psychedelic treatments. Another piece of housekeeping is I'm very excited to announce that we will shortly be outlining what I'm calling the Summer Symposium series. These are exclusive uh, forum format uh, live podcasts that I will be hosting from my home uh, with Uh, some very special guests and we will be covering a different topic every month so uh, watch this space I'll be updating the website and you guys via the podcast on what to expect so a lot of things in the pipeline and yeah this year's looking very exciting so until next time take care and noli to marry